listening to the Bloody Bits Horror Show with your host, Eddie Diaz. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Bloody Bits Horror Show. I am your host, Eddie the Axe Jefferson, and joining me as always, the co-host with the co-most, Tim Yobo. How are you doing today, sir? I'm still here, so I'm doing good. How about you? I'm doing uh, splendidly, actually. I can't beat that. Oh man, we're doing we're we're going to be doing a lot better, Tim. I promise you. And I've got two reasons why. Reason number one: uh-huh. this is the first episode of December or December. We're out of Bullvember. Thank God. The, the darkest <laughs> part of the winter is over. Oh wait, no, it isn't. No, but no, movie-wise, no. Movie-wise, it is. We're getting into the darkest bits and the bleakest bits of the winter, and I could think of no better man to join us through the dreary and, and the gray month of December, and for no better subject than Cronenberg, of course, than, well, return guest, Iago Faustus. Hey, guys. Welcome, Faustus. Hey, it's great to be back. I'm so happy to have you back after uh, Videodrome, which was a wonderful episode. Yep. It made and, me and... watch the movie for the first time. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Gosh. It was just one of those things that I've always heard about it, and it's just like, eh, next time, next time, next time, next time, and just never got around to it. But I heard that episode, and it made me curious, so I saw it. Well, wonderful. I'm glad that, that we could have inspired that uh, in any way, shape, or form. And, I, and I'll, I'll say it up ahead of, of this. Um, definitely watch Rabbit if you have not watched it yet before you listen to this episode. Of course, we're going to be going through it note by note. Yes, and you have it up on the server. And I think it's on Tubi, and I think it's on probably on Amazon too. But watch it on our yeah. server. That's much better. It, it's available. So, Faustus, man, thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, like I said, we just got out of Bolvember where we watched a month of Uva Bulls movies uh uh faustus are you familiar with the works of uva bowl oh not terribly i mostly oh. i guess I, 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 i've been i've been absorbing them bit by bit uh through through the bloody bits podcast and, not even on. you faustus could come up with good things to say about any of his movies oh dear oh dear well if i start to notice any symptoms or anything i'll i'll be sure to let you know but uh yeah. Well, there, there's a reason I went with body horror, which might be my favorite subgenre of horror right after Bolvember. And that's, uh, I think it was Bertrand Russell that said that he has a Bible on the shelf that's next to Voltaire because he keeps the poison next to its antidote. Uh, <laughs> Good. <laughs> I think, well, I think uh, going to where we're going here, which is more, more substance than style mm-hmm. versus the, the, the inverse with Bull. The no, definitely. Body horror is really the thing because it's it's the most intimate, I think, form of horror. Uh, and as the most intimate, it probably gets closest to some of the truths or the the, the things that horror is trying to convey. Um, uh, and I, you know, I, I can go into that as we talk a bit about maybe in general terms, body horror, what it is. Uh, I have some remarks if you want to well, yeah, I think that's where I want to start the groundwork here is yep. what is body horror? Mm-hmm. Because 
the definition's a bit nebulous, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I've uh, uh, we've had some discussions about this, and uh, Candace brought up uh, she speaking of the thing wanted to uh, uh, possibly review the, the John Carpenter's The Thing, mm-hmm. and I was on the fence about it a bit because. And this this is simply my definition of body horror. Feel free to, uh, you know, give me your opinions, obviously. But I think that the central element of body horror is one's own physiology betraying them, mm-hmm. right? While you maintain sentience, mostly. Yes. I mean, I think this is mostly right because it gives you a sense of the distinction between this and cla- there's a sort of kind of a classic horror where you have something unnatural that comes from the outside uh, and it attacks you or it, dis- it attempts to destroy you or something you love. It comes from space or it comes from under the ocean or it comes from a graveyard. You get a shambling array of zombies attacking your homestead. You get a vampire flitting through the window and exsanguinating your daughter. Uh, a giant monster comes up from the depths and destroys your city. That's a pretty classic form of horror. But body horror is this much more intimate thing where you begin to change. And in many cases, you are becoming the monster. And you Uh, can't get away from it because it's you. Because it's you. You can't run away from yourself. Uh, You know, through mutation, through mad science, disease, whatever, your body begins to change in ways that are, are grotesque. Uh, at least to most observers. Now, with Cronenberg, there's a little bit of an exception to that because in Cronenberg, often you get the sense sometimes that the protagonist may actually be interested in or welcoming their changes. Uh, And there are hints of that, I think, in Rabid, but we'll get to that, I think, when we break the movie down. Um, But whatever's going on, you are changing. With your body changing, you may retain sentience, as Eddie says, but you are, at the same time, often changing your psychology. Um, and you may often find yourself doing things or even enjoying things which your pre-changed self with its normal civilized human values would, are, would be repelled by. So that just adds to it. Yes. So like, to take the vampire example as the simplest one or the most classic one, biting into somebody else's flesh and sucking their blood yeah, is going to seem kind of revolting to most people. But once you've undergone the change... To you, it may actually feel powerful or sexy or something like that. So, see, all the times I've ever seen vampire movies, I've never found that like to be like a squirm part of the movie or like, oh, I don't want to look at that at all. It kind of seems like just eh, par for the course. Yeah, uh, and and in fact, it may actually, you know, for Cronenberg, if we look at the one scene of vampirism as we're coming up in Rabid, it may be even sort of better than par for the course. Now, I guess Cronenberg uh, often has said, and this is something you pick up, say, for example, on. His um, his commentaries on you know if you get the discs with the Blu-rays and a gazillion special features that super nerds like me like to watch. I was gonna say I'm sure yeah. you have it. <laughs> I have it as well. <laughs> yep, and uh, well, occupies a place of honor. Maybe not as quite a place, high a place of honor as Reanimator, but it's certainly there in the shrine. Um, there, there are horror is often a way of representing stories, uh, stories that may convey truths that are just too horrible. To contemplate if they at were just that given, time, yes. That yeah. or, but also if they were just given to you straight. So, for example, Cro- this is Cronenberg's example. I'll jazz it up a little bit because Cronenberg is very plain spoken when he's doing these commentaries. Imagine the following story: you have a man and you have a woman, and they're both really nice, really attractive people. They're talented. They're interesting. 
but they're both kind of lonely, okay, because they both have been devoting their lives to their careers, and so they haven't really met the right person, they don't really have the time for it, but somehow, in the course of the story, these two people's paths cross, and they hit it off, and they fall in love, and they're happy, probably more happy than they've ever been in their lives before, but then the man contracts a horrible wasting disease, and he becomes hideously disfigured, and he suffers excruciating pain to the point where finally he begs the woman to kill him because he just cannot take it anymore. Uh, and the woman doesn't want to do this because she's in love with this man, but eventually it just becomes so horrible that she, he goes, she complies with his wish and kills him. Now, if you pitch that as a story, uh, you know, in Hollywood or wherever, you're probably just going to be, like, shown out by security, right? That's just too horrible. <laughs> yeah. It's way it's too horrible. It's love story meets uh, George Romero. Yeah. yeah, it's way too horrible. But if instead of, like, a disease that the man catches, it's a mad science experiment that went off the rails uh, with his teleportation machine, and you now call the story The Fly uh, and make it a sort of a mad science horror story, now you can tell the story. Uh, well, it's yeah. a nice little so, cover for it, yeah. Yeah, now you, you have to you can watch it and just enjoy it because it's a guy turning into a fly and doing right. crazy shit, or you read into the subtext ten, fifteen years later and you go, oh shit, I never thought about that before. There you go, and basically that you know, you can get away with it, and people can watch it because they go, oh well, it's just a movie. It's about a teleportation machine. There's no such thing as that. I can just like take this as pure entertainment. Yeah, it's kind of uh, like the uh, Mad Max Fury Road. It's you watch it because it's just a great action movie just to watch it, but there's a lot of subtext in that movie. Oh, yeah. And and I think there's a lot in The Fly. And there's a lot, actually, I think there are human existential subtexts, uh, especially in Cronenberg. Um, you know, being born is kind of terrible. But life itself is actually kind of terrible. Uh, because, it's, you know, life itself is an accumulation of bodily destruction wrought by accidents and disease. And even if you're lucky enough to avoid these... You know, you're still going to fall apart and break down as the course of your life goes on. As soon as you're born, you start dying. Right. And, you know, so since we are all living a body horror movie, uh, you know, certainly by about the age of 30, things really begin to decay, uh, maybe imperceptibly at first, but it's certainly accelerating as um, as time goes on. Take it from me. Right, I'm hold on a second. Tonight. i got I to move in my chair. Hang on. Okay, no problem. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> anyway. For those of us who are, even for those of us who are lucky enough to reach the age of three scores and ten, promised by the psalmist, uh, you know, we will have spent the majority of our life, in some sense, just falling apart. Uh, and it, because it happens over decades rather than in a 90-minute movie, it doesn't necessarily feel like a movie. But the movie is condensing, the body horror movie is condensing that kind of ugly, you know, existential truth. That it's going to happen to all of us. We yes. might we might all have a ghost chasing us around the house, but we're all going to mm -hmm. die. We're all going to get old, and like you said, she's going to start falling apart on you. Yep. Uh, and people don't like to confront that, but they but it's a subtext that's going to be for Cronenberg, especially who likes this sort of. He's very interested in this sort of philosophical thing. Um, you know, he's going to he's going to be found in the movie, and I'll advance like another slightly controversial, a little more controversial, like existential proposition here, which is that. You know, we, in the course of our lives, we often have a feeling that there's sort of like almost like a second person inside of us, mm -hmm. a, a kind of a demonic other self. It's sort of fighting to get out and get control and do terrible things, right? Um, you so know, you have your good angel and your bad angel on your shoulders. Yep. And it's, you know, it's, Freud is sort of notable as sort of an example of someone who thinks like this, but it's a very ancient idea. Um, 
the psychology of the demon within, one might call it. Um, for example, the first book of Plato's Republic, um, yeah, the, the very, it actually almost begins with the host of the dialogue talking about, you know, he's an old man, and he's talking about what it's like to be old, and he says, well, there's one thing that's kind of good about being old. Uh, I remember learning it from the poet Sophocles when I met him one day, um, and he said, you know, he asked Sophocles, you know, something like, you know, how does it, how does it feel, like, you know, with sexual desire at your age, Sophocles? Um, you know, are you still the man you were? And his response was, well, most gladly I have escaped the thing of which you speak. I feel as if I have escaped from a mad and furious master. Hmm. All right. Yes. Uh, so, uh, so, so wonderfully stated. Um, yep. So first of all, Faustus, thank you for sending me Thomas Ligotti's uh, The Conspiracy Against the Human Race. Yep. I, I devoured it, and wow, does it deal with a lot of Cronenberg's um, thematic overtones. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing that, that just popped in my mind while you were, were talking about this is specifically in, in Rabid and, and sort of kind of the folly of the human condition is the the fight between the Eros and the Thanatos, right? So what, what you're seeing here is, like you said, I'm glad that I no longer want to have sex, right? So that, that Eros, the, the drive for for life and the drive to reproduce and to continue to creating. But as you said, the human state is a fallen state. It's uh, we are born to die. We are decaying pieces of meat in masses that, that are even that desire to reproduce is just our rush toward death. And I think Rabid kind of is Cronenberg running with that, mm -hmm. that, that, that uh, philosophy. Yeah, he. I think he, he clearly he clearly sees this, um, and he's also he also links. I think he links this the arrows to the Thanatos, the desire to reproduce, the work, but also the desire to dominate and to destroy. Um, yes, possibly yes. to destroy oneself, uh, which is you know th which is Freud's sort of death instinct to try to get out of this this horror that is existence, and he links it then the, where it comes back to body horror is that. The some that these somatic transformations that often take place um, represent, in some ways, this demon within taking a form without. So in uh, in werewolf movies, especially more recent ones, uh, you get this predatory beast and this transformation into one, which is represented as an excruciating process. Oh uh, yeah, especially, especially like beginning with movies like American Werewolf in London. Uh, oh, yeah. And then you run around and you destroy things. Vampires at least grow fangs, and I guess they change in other ways. And poor helpless Rose in Rabid, she's going to get her own transformation, and it's going to be pretty special. Yeah, and she. It, what's so interesting with this, is, is, and we'll totally get into it, is Rose is both antagonist and protagonist kind of personified uh in 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 the fact that she she effectively walks around almost like a force of nature in, in this movie just leaving at her wake uh kind of the carnage and the destruction that that she has wrought but and unaware part, too it looks like exactly the other part of her personality completely divorced from that completely unaware of it uh much like the werewolf mythos or at first i mean i think she changes well, over the yes, course of so, oh, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, he I think, has an I arc think, in which he changes over the course of this. Right. As soon as he begins to don the fur, then the uh, she becomes the hunter. Mm-hmm. So, to we, I mean, I have a little background on the movie. If you want to move in that yeah, direction, yeah, absolutely. So, um, David Cronenberg's second film, released in nineteen seventy-seven, his second commercial film. I mean, there are well, a number yeah, of yes, yes, there are a second, number of experimental and student films that come before this. Um, some of which are actually kind of interesting, um, but it's certainly a second commercial film. It's preceded by Shivers, uh, which is the story of, uh, I guess it's like it's another plague story, right? Uh, a parasite, a sexually transmitted parasite, basically takes over and destroys the population of an isolated apartment high-rise uh, somewhere outside of Montreal. And it's followed in 1979 by a movie called The Brood. Hmm, uh, I remember seeing that in the movie theaters. Yeah. Yes, well, that must have been, that must have been it's just, the brood. The brood is quite icky. Um, it's, it's basically the story of experimental therapy turning, taking a mentally ill woman and turning into this monstrous progenitrix of these these child killing things. It's really hard to it defies easy description. Yeah, that well, yeah, because it's, it's to the producers. Yeah. Oh yeah, because it's the the physical manifestation of uh, a spiritual wound uh, given mm-hmm. flesh. So the three of these movies basically, I think, are sort of bound together in a kind of they're a body horror trilogy. They're not you know success, They're not sequels to one another. But no, they certainly but they're have, all but part they, of each other. But they all have doubt. They have these deep thematic interconnections, um, you know, associated with Cronenberg and his own, I guess, his own obsessions. Um, and, you know, there are certainly other Cronenberg movies that are great examples of body horror. Um, the Fly is probably one of the most polished examples. Yeah, there. that's why um, I think everybody knows that movie. And I guess I, yeah, I thought about it, but I actually wanted to choose Rabid... When, when Eddie suggested, let's do a body horror episode or a body horror month, I thought, let's do Rabid because, one, uh, it's it's a very it's a Christmas movie of a sort. It's a, um, I, I was watching it. I'm like, wow, you know what? Holy shit, this is a secret Christmas movie. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Next time someone says Die Hard, I'm going like, to no, fuck you, Rabbit. Rabbit. Uh, I mean, not, not just in the sense, well, we'll get to that particular mall scene, but uh, also, like, it, it, it's bleak. Uh, Quebec landscape, which is often you know, yeah, I have that in my notes, Faustus. Where it's like every shot outside, the fucking sky is gray or overcast. I don't think there's any part where they're like there's sunshine showing in this movie or or dark. Yeah, there's no sunshine. It's very dark. Uh, it's very bleak. It's very winter. Uh, maybe that's that's what Canada kind of is. You know, a lot of months out of the year, but and also, but also, it's a, it's a it's a pandemic movie. Uh, yeah, we're all sitting at home, right? I'm you know isolated from one another because of you know, because of a global pandemic this is a story about an epidemic that takes that terrorizes an entire city at the very least mm-hmm. and so it seemed in, in this particular oh, time, at one point it seems like almost the world because this isn't like there's doctors from london and paris showing up well there's the guy there's the who guy right who comes in doctor um oh i'll get to it in my notes but he's you know he shows up and he says and he's 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 terrifying man he comes in and says you know we have to shoot these people um because that's the only thing that we can do. Uh, and, you know, you have people getting vaccinated and having cards and having, like, martial law, which is also, in these re- in these rather politically nervous times, I think is kind of resonant. So it seemed like Rabid was the choice to go with here. Cronenberg um, might be one of the most prescient filmmakers, I swear to God. Between the themes of um, cosmetic surgery, 
uh, uh, stem cell research, and, and then, becoming like a franchise on cosmetics. Yeah, and then the the ah, the, ah. the handling, <laughs> the KFC of cosmetic surgery, and, and the yeah. handling of of, of uh, pandemics. It's, I mean, the only thing I was missing was that everybody was not complaining they they couldn't get toilet paper. Right. Well, I think that's why they were all at the mall that day. Okay. There's some there's some evidence that the Canadian government, uh, in in the context of this movie, knew what it was doing. Uh, so that's uh, you know unusual. Uh, <laughs> well, he's Canadian, so he knows the healthcare system works. Yes. If this is an American movie, the Canadian government doesn't know what the fuck they're doing. They never get your vaccination cards, and they're not testing everybody before they go into a shopping center. People refuse to get vaccinated because, you know. Benjamin Franklin or something. I, I don't know. Benjamin Franklin predicted 5G, so I can't get this yeah. vaccine. Yeah, and then we just have Will Smith go and shoot Rose. <laughs> ah, shorter movie. So there, there's some background. I don't have very extensive casting notes here. Uh, it's not that I want to diss the actors, who I actually think are quite good in this movie. It's just that if you try to research them, especially for an American audience... You get, well, here's an actor you haven't heard of who's appeared in a large number of movies that you haven't heard of uh, and appeared with other actors who you haven't heard of. And it might get a little tedious. But I do have one, there is one big exception here, and that's that the part of Rose is played by Marilyn Chambers. Mm -hmm. Uh, David Cronenberg apparently originally wanted to get Sissy Spacek for this role of all people. Um, He was impressed by her performance in Badlands. But there were some questions about her suitability for a movie set in Quebec, given her accent. And freckles, yeah. Yeah, and freckles and so forth. Producer Ivan Reitman got a really clever idea. Let's get publicity by casting Marilyn Chambers. Now, for those, some people who are the young, some of the younger listeners here may not necessarily have a sense of Marilyn Chambers' celebrity. Um, So let me just say that she had, she was, probably one of the biggest stars during the brief golden age of pornography. Um, She had appeared at this time in a Mitchell Brothers production called Behind the Green Door. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. um, Which I have seen. Uh, It was the first time I was able to sit down and say I'm looking... You know the old joke about how a guy gets caught looking at porn and this is his research? Well, (laughs) here it is. Um, You know, thank God for this podcast because now (laughs) I'm going to be able to get away with so much more shit watching it. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, And Marilyn Chambers was such a phenomenal cast for Rose. Like, I I would say... She's great in this part. Yes. Yes. She's she's For someone who has no training as an actor, uh, she actually does surprisingly well. Uh, she's done porn movies, so she has some training as an actor. Yeah, because back then it, it wasn't just bang, 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 come shot, come shot. But in, they had but, action, acting, acting. But there, but she has. There are actually no lines in Behind the Green Door, mm, or she okay. she yeah. doesn't have any. Um, she yeah, she acts in, in that sense, but she never has to. She never has to speak a line. Obviously, she has to speak a lot of lines uh, in in as Rose. So. But she had, it was an inspired choice. She, had these, she has these wonderful, genuine, good girl next door looks. She's incredibly uh, beautiful in this whole yeah. movie. She does. Yeah. She, and she, you know, she had, had been like an athlete when she was in high school. Uh, you know, like a junior Olympic diver and gymnast. And she'd been a model. Uh, as a lot of people know, she was a model holding a baby on the ivory soapbox. 
Yep, 99.44% pure. Pure. <laughs> She's not entirely pure, Faustus. Yes, not entirely. Oh, but I have a little bit of spice in there. Um, and also, she had she was sort of lucky, I think, in some ways, because the Mitchell brothers had higher aspirations for making their adult features than perhaps many producers do. I think they, they really wanted to make real movies. Uh, and this was this was meant to be the start of that 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 process. She apparently had not wanted to do an adult role. She didn't mind it being, uh, she didn't mind appearing on the camera naked, but she didn't want to do sex. But they offered her so much money in cash up front that she decided it was foolish not to take the offer, uh, and it launched her. Uh, the Mitchells were terrific. I don't know how much you know about them as a an American entertainment phenomenon, but they launched a lot of the golden age of porn. They were um they're sort of responsible for the the exploitation of early vhs technology as a way of distributing it yeah Mm -hmm. um they are responsible apparently for like that fbi thing that appears in the start of every movie yes Uh, wow damn porn just porn just breaks down so many uh barriers you know the the thing is you ask i have a friend uh bacchus at eros blog long time uh porn blogger he's been at it for like about almost 20 years now uh and he's basically said look Porn pioneers technology. Yeah. Yes. Because it, has some, because it has something that people really, really, really want. And so they're going to like make the investment. And that's why you have PayPal and being able to pay for shit over the internet because yep. the porn companies wanted a secure way of getting a subscription every month. Secure transactions, home video, you name it. Um, you know, this, this thing, they pioneered it and they pioneered this. My favorite story about them, though, is um, they had a place called the, the Feral Theater. Uh, in San Francisco, which is, I think, where Behind the Green Door was shot. And they got into a tangle with Diane Feinstein, uh, who at the time was a San Francisco city supervisor. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that horrible one's political career never end. Um, and, I was going to say, <laughs> at that time, she was 83 years old back then. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, she, was, she tried to shut them down, and their response was to post the, the phrase on their theater marquee, for a good time, call and then her home phone number. Wow, <laughs> that's a ball of move. Yep, they got away with it. Uh, so these were go San Francisco values. Also, um, they they're behind the green doors. Believe be the first feature length movie to have a interracial hardcore scene. Uh, so they are remarkably progressive, shall we say? Uh, yeah, you didn't uh, see that much back then, right? Yep. You didn't see that. I mean, you you would have seen it. You might have found it like in like little loops or something like that. But this was a this is a sort of major step up for it. And not only that, but like you said, Faust, this is they're trying to make like a major, big budget, well, maybe not a big budget movie, but something that's going to appeal to a large audience of people instead of just you know the guys in raincoats going in the jack off in Times Square. So for them to put yeah, so for them to have like an interracial scene in it was taking even more of a chance. Yep. Yeah, this yep. was on the on the the level of like a deep throat that they mm-hmm. were they were looking at like we want a commercial success and yeah that's that's great. So she, you know, she's she is well launched. Um, Marilyn Chambers is to go for a crossover, and there aren't that many of them. I mean, no, it's I a think, hard thing to do. Yeah, I, I think you know Tracy Lords did it kinda. Um, and, no, you know, I see. I think yeah. with you Tracy Lords, didn't she always just play off on being Tracy Lords and shit? It wasn't like she was, was she actually doing like any real acting parts where she wasn't Tracy Lords or a Tracy Lords like character? It's kind of low ranking. It's kind of direct to video. Uh, like, yeah, I think some of them are like real parts, but not really 
you know, significant ones. The other example that I can think of is a French actress named Brigitte Lai. Um, if you ever, if we ever watch a movie called uh, Grapes of Death, which is mm. actually in my proposed Grindbin poll, uh, that would huh. also be, be an example. Um, but I, I can't own... wait to see this poll. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'll encourage Mike to get it out. Uh, <laughs> you got to nudge him uh, sometimes. Sometimes he forgets. Okay, I'll well. tell you what. If there's any film that deals with incest, that's the one that will win the poll. <laughs> Even if nobody knows it, it's a secret incest movie. It's still going to win. White Fire. Nobody knew that was White Fire. Nobody knew that that was coming up. (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, Yep. And uh, White Fire, I guess, ended up having a lot of interesting connections to the movie we just did in terms of who was in it and did things. Oh, okay. The nexus of bad movies, I guess. Uh, Anyway, so... She does things very competently and rabid. Uh, and Cronenberg really thought she was terrific. Um, she was easy to work with. Uh, she could produce things. He asked her sometimes how she did her acting, and it looks like she should have invented for herself a version of the method uh, to you know get to do things. If she has to scream or has to cry, which she does a lot in this movie, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it comes across as pretty genuine. No, I'm re- I was really, really surprised with how good she was in the movie. I figured, you know, you you know the name. You're like, all right, yeah. They put her in because she's going to be naked in the movie. Maybe there's going to be some sex scenes in it, and that's why they got a porn actress. But she's really, really good. Yep. Well, and plus to sell things to international uh, uh, distributors, you want to have a name attached. And, and Cronenberg, they, they didn't have a very good budget for this film. I think it was... Like five hundred thousand dollars, so like two point four million today. So if you can't afford star power, what do you do? You go with name recognition. Well, they got that, and it's also, but it's also happy accident. From it's also kind of a brilliant choice from the perspective of Rose is more than perhaps she seems. Because if you know, we look at Rose, we're meant to see this sweet, innocent girl who apparently everyone likes. but when we look at the movie, we cannot but be aware at the same time that we're looking at a, one of the most celebrated porn actresses then working. Right, um, yeah. So there's a strong hint of duality in the character already uh, that underneath this innocent exterior, maybe something kind of wild and lawless might be lurking. It's almost well, I don't, a perfect You don't really casting. get too much of an introduction of her and the boyfriend. It's like pretty much there they are and then the movie kicks right in so you don't really like get her backstory or anything like oh like whether or not she's a really nice girl or she's a well you can put it you can put a little bit of it together i think it seems like a lot of people actually know who rose is or was one of the odd things is that a lot of people associated with the keloid clinic seem to have a sense of who she is yeah even though it's not clear bizarre. how she how they met that is a little weird it may be a hole in the screen the writing uh but also she has this friend in Montreal. Yeah, that's Mindy. true. Okay. If she and, met, Mindy and, is a and, friend. She can't be and, bad. And, and, and Mindy is just like the most sympathetic character imaginable. So, oh, yeah. And um, so I think if nobody uh, has any more background uh, on this, we can go ahead and get started with the beats. I, th- I think we're kind of already moving in that direction as it is. One thing I'll just say, I, I would also say that the movie does seem to have been a pretty brilliant jumping off point for its producer. Um, oh, yes, for Ivan Reitman. Oh, yeah. Yes. That was a surprise when I saw his name. Yeah, mm-hmm. because he, he went on to do National Lampoon's Animal House, Meatballs, Stripes, Ghostbusters. I mean, it's very improbable yeah. movies when you think of associated with, um, you know, Rabbit. But there it was. He 
he in some ways yeah. got richer and more famous than even Cronenberg did. And, and effectively, like, being one of the driving forces to make Lionsgate what it, what it was, mm-hmm. eventually. Um, yeah, no, no, totally agree. So, yeah, we've got Marilyn Chambers as Rose, Frank Moore as Hart Reed, uh, another kind of relative newcomer to the industry. Uh, we've got Joe Silver playing Murray. He was a Broadway film and television actor and previously worked with Cronenberg on Shivers, as well as uh, Howard Reispen, who played Dr. Dan Keloid. Those are, I think, maybe uh, our, our main kind of starring characters, but there will be some more people to introduce Yeah, there's a couple of other people floating around the clinic. Yeah. And we started off out in the open with Our Lady Rose and her man riding a motorcycle. And we get a little taste of Cronenberg's love for uh, uh, automobiles and motorcycles, yeah, and filming them. You'd see a little more with Fast Company in 1979. Um but but he he you get some some decent tracking shots and and it's funny I was listening to a masterclass of his recently where he was talking about uh, drones specifically and drones being used for these these larger uh, uh, shots and he says you know it's it's interesting the way that that man is is connected with technology because on one hand we we are going to be artistic with these drones and we can create these shots that we no longer need a helicopter to do but also we're going to use them to kill people so well the same thing with helicopters right yeah yeah uh, it's just an extension of humanity technology and it's just getting smaller quicker and faster speaking of uh, um cronenberg's themes so they're out in the frosty kind of middle of nowhere of quebec and meanwhile, we cut back to the Keloid Institute. The clinic. Right? Yeah, yeah. Did you, look and, up, uh, did you look up keloid in the dictionary? Yes, oh. it is an overgrowth of scar tissue that is often caused by trauma. Yep. And, wow. uh, and don't, don't Google it unless you have a strong stomach because they can be quite – they're like kind of a real-world body bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, we, we have uh, um, Cronenberg's history of biology kind of coming in into this. And it, th- that's what's always fun is when you hear him talking shop. And he allows the characters to talk shop. But visually, the representation that, that's in front of you while they're talking shop, it, it takes care of it for you. They, they don't try to talk down to you. you yeah, know? when you get that, uh, when the doctor gives that big exposition, uh, that exposition dump, He's doing shit that's interesting to watch while he's talking about with what's going on. So it's it's the best way to handle it. But Doctor Keloid here is talking with Murray uh, about a uh, potential to get a loan from the bank and franchise out the <laughs> the cosmetic surgery ward. Uh, the Kentucky Fried Chicken of cosmetic surgery. This is yeah. the co- Colonel Sanders of plastic surgery. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's got that secret <laughs> recipe, doesn't he? <laughs> oh, he certainly does. I, I mean, he only has half of the recipe. The other half they have to send away for. Well, the, the Cypher says, well, I think that's not such a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, Joe, you know, uh, what, what's Joe, wrong with that? Joe Silver, man, the guy who plays this character, Murray Cypher, looks as much like a, he's the most character-actor-looking character actor I think I've ever seen. Because he's, you know, he's got this incredible face. Uh, yeah. 
Uh, incredible he's face. Phenomenal. He's got one of the most incredible voices. And an incredible voice, right? He's like he's everyone's beloved cranky uncle, um, kind of brought to life. Uh, so yeah, he's a he's a high in a way he's kind of he's not that well known, but he's kind of a minor high point. In the uh, I looked him up a little bit. He's done over a thousand different TV shows. Yeah, I mean, like he's that guy. Yep. yep. If you want the cranky uncle, you 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 definitely go with him. He's he's wonderful in this movie. He's definitely one of the high points. Uh, Acting-wise, compared to, like, a, say, a Frank Moore. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the scenes with them together is a little bit uh, strained. Canadian hero Frank Moore, yes, sir. Yeah, I, you know, I think it actually might be a little bit of Cronenberg's direction with Frank Moore. We, they, they kind of want him to be a little bit of a stand-in, uh, kind of a cardboard cutout for much of the movie. So... Anyhow, we, we then cut to uh, a family in, in their van arguing. They're, their Chevy van. Their Chevy van, yeah. Mm-hmm. Insert Grindman podcast joke here. <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll do that someday. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, he, he, so the dad, finally, he's fed up with it, and we've all been here, and he parks the van. Maybe not in the it, best does way. Does he park the van, or is he trying to make a U-turn? It's trying to and it stalls. Turn. Yeah, and it stalls out. That's that's true. Uh, right in the middle of the road, just as their motorcycle uh, uh, pulls up, and they're unable to stop, and they they uh, they kind of viva Knievel over the Chevy van, <laughs> and uh, yeah, horrific motorcycle accident, which which throws Hart off of it and pins Rose under the motorcycle. It, explodes which, which promptly explodes yeah, find a and... find example of british manufacturing that it is yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, charlie's uh, laughing right now when you, just from that joke poor charlie and uh yeah so then it starts burning her alive and you know we, we get some some uh people trying to to help from the van putting her out but their efforts are, are largely well useless. the scene is the way the, the camera cuts back to it and the guy has a blanket but he's walking away from her yeah, as the and, ambulance and also, is coming down the road so it's like he kind of like got close enough he didn't he's like yeah fuck it and he turned right around. But, but at first he's oh. like flapping the blanket on her rather than trying to smother the the fire he's fanning it well my work um, here is done yeah look i tried she's a witch burner <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah we we kick back over to the keloid institute and uh it, it it's some of the patients there we see a, a a lady with some bandages on under her eyes who's had some cosmetic surgery looking through binoculars who witnesses this explosion and they the the patients report it to the staff and it's interesting because there's almost a moment of hesitance right where they're like should we go deal with this it's not really our area of expertise it seems like dr dan is more interested in the medicine end, and Murray and we find out later on his wife are more interested in making the money, because they're talking business. And he hears about the car accident, and he's like, "Oh, bang!" He wants to go right away and take care of it. And Murray, of course, just keeps talking about investors. It's actually a very funny scene in some in some way. Yeah, it's very. Um, 
cynical. Tone deaf. Yeah, cynical, precisely. <laughs> it's like, look, we can get some investors. Yeah, they might pull out or whatever, but 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 then who cares? We're, yeah, we'll we'll already have the out. money by then, right? Oh, hey, hey, we have a, a body that we could potentially experiment on. Nobody will know about it. It's perfect. Yes. You have your test case. It's uh, <laughs> not, not wonderful. So Dr. Keloid and Steve hop into an ambulance, and they rush out to rescue Rose. They they pull her out from under the twisted, burning wreck of an of a motorcycle and load her into the ambulance. And in there, the doctor is on the phone with uh, what I have to assume is an administrator of the the nearest actual hospital, um, saying, "Look, she's she's got about an hour to live. You guys are three hours away. We're going to take her over to our our center and perform surgery there." Uh, yeah, because I think the boyfriend, Hart, he doesn't really have any kind of, like, real serious injuries, which is weird because you would figure that that motorcycle accident, this guy would be, like, in a fucking wheelchair for at least a couple of weeks, right? Well, he gets, I guess they describe his injuries. He's thrown clear and ends up with a concussion, a separated shoulder, and a broken hand. So he came out pretty good. But he's also out of it at the time that this conversation is going on. Yeah, he's a bit in shock and a bit catatonic. And, in fact, they, they say... Uh, he he tells one of the nurses if he, he becomes lucid and, and and freaks out to give him some Demerol um, for for the pain I, I would assume. So they uh, get to the the practice and, and we saw, see a well dressed man who, who's at the receptionist's table with his hands in, in bandages as they they wheel Rose by bloodied on on her. On her car. Oh, yeah, he he's says, got a real interesting comment, doesn't he? Yeah, he says, hey, uh, what's going on there? Oh, oh, she was in an accident. He's like, well, I mean, could you put a sheet over her or something? No, like, he doesn't it? No, he doesn't say her. He goes, couldn't they it. cover it yeah. with a blanket? Yeah, so you kind of get the idea that this this might be almost like a surgical retreat for, for the, the wealthy. Oh, well, definitely. Yeah, who else can afford plastic surgery back then? But also, but and, also, look, and staying at, there for a couple of weeks. If you look at the quarters that these people live in, um, they're obviously very comfortable. It's a resort, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's long, a hot narrow time. hallways, though, and a lot of carpet all over a hospital. Well, apparently, uh, they it was the headquarters of Lipton Tea in Canada, which was Cronenberg took over as his shooting site for this. Yeah. Oh, okay. interesting. <laughs> you know, you've got a budget of only half a million dollars. You make do. Yeah, you and I, shoot I wonder, where you is can shoot. Is there any parts where anybody's drinking Lipton tea in the movie? Yeah. Uh, we do get a tea drinking scene later on. Yes, we do. Well, it, he's yeah. drinking out of a teacup, so let's it yeah. could be whiskey. Well, we Who knows? Which I got a could question be. about how that guy has a baby, but we'll save that for later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a very good point. So uh, yeah, they, they they bring her in there, and they they decide like, okay, well, we have this. Experimental treatment, right, which is basically we take a skin graft from the thigh and we treat the graft to make it morphogenetically neutral. Basically, the uh, uh, denature the tissue itself, converting it into what modernly we would think of as, as like a stem cell, right? It's, it, so then, not, it, it is. It's stem cells. Because he's saying you're going to take right. this part from the thigh, you're going to put it there, and they're going to treat it, and it's going to act just like a part of her cheek. It's going to form into a cheek. It's going to form into wherever they put it. So that's stem cells. Right, and he, he literally cites that it's the way that an embryo grows uh, to, to match whatever the, the need is of the cells around it. Right. So it will no longer be for uh, thigh meat. It will be 
uh, forehead mead. <laughs> right. But here, there's something a little, it's an icky, it's, a, it's an agreeably icky scene, too, because we actually get to see them use this instrument to peel away skin from her outer thigh. Or, you know, it's probably like a model or something, but they they show us. Um, and Cronenberg's comment on one of this was he went and watched real operations to get this right. And when one of his one of the doctors said to him as he was doing this, I suppose you're going to represent us as being in this is in Montreal. You're going to represent us as being en peu sadique uh, in our surgeries. That is to say, a little bit sadistic. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, well, you know, that's kind of how it is. But this is a this is this raises an interesting question because they say they have to take the skin and send it to something called the Sperling Institute. Yeah, it's going to take a month for, cult- for culturing. And this makes me wonder: well, what is going on here? Either there's a there's a hole in the screenplay writing um, because they had earlier established that they didn't have time to take her to a you know an actual fully equipped trauma center or hospital and had to go here, or Calloid is being disingenuous. Uh, and he's actually looking at using the, he's using this as a, this kindly, nice Dr. Kelloid, the healer, the guy who's really interested in medicine is now picking up the opportunity thrown at him to play mad scientist. You know what? I think you might be on something the fastest because like I said, the other two, Murray and the wife are only concerned about the business end and mm-hmm. he doesn't seem to give a shit about that. He's only c- caring about doing what he wants to do medically and he maybe he sees this opportunity and yeah, he's going to say, yeah, the nearest hospital is four hours away. And then he's able to keep her in the hospital for a month till he gets the results back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the highway to hell is paved with good intentions. And we'll see later that Dr. Keloid's handling of Lloyd is maybe less than appropriate, right? Um, so I think you might be onto something there, Faustus. And, and um, again, in the master class I was listening to, uh, where where Cronenberg was specifically discussing Rabbit, he points out that he he famously kind of uh, cuts to hell his own work until they're reduced down to just the barest bones that are required to tell the story. But once he is done with it, uh, he is done with it. You're never going to get a director's cut. And he said, I might have done that a, a little bit too much with this film. Hmm. Okay, so maybe there's a scene where the Institute plays a bigger part, but it got cut. I don't, maybe, but in, 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 this was in reference to explaining exactly what happened with Rose and, and what physiological changes she had gone through. Mm-hmm. But in hindsight, I think that that's still the, the better choice, right, is to leave it mysterious. Or, or but when that, you think about it, why is that even necessary that there has to be another institute that they have to send the skin graft to to get treated. Why aren't they just doing it there at the hospital where he invented this technique, right? You would imagine that everything is being done in-house. Well, he said he lacked the heavy machinery that was required. Okay. I mean, it's a little, it's odd. I've seen the screenplay for this, or what parts to be the screenplay for this movie. Uh, And it is true that it was very aggressively cut. It's very hard to follow along in the screenplay uh, what you know, with the movie running at the same time. Because scenes have been shuffled a great deal, a lot of things have been cut, a lot of dialogue has been cut. Uh, but I didn't see anything that necessarily explained this. Now, in terms of like having like a minimalist um, a minimalist movie, I think that's actually a really good strategy because it invites 
the viewer to come in and put their own theories in. You're filling it in yourself. And I right. think that it's I think the movie is it's minimal, but I think it works. I don't think there's really anything where you're like, wait, what's going on with that too much? It really right. moves at a nice pace and you basically know everything that you need to know and the rest you just gotta take it because hey, it's that kind of a movie. Yeah. No, I, I entirely agree. Um it's but We've gotten the skin graft, and then we move forward a month in narrative time. Yeah, I'll tell you, the thing yes. that bothers me the most about the skin graft is when they wrap it up, when they roll it up in that cotton. Right. I don't know. There's something about that that skeeved me out, more so <laughs> than the actual taking it off. Uh, it's the turning the human into a product. It's, uh, it's unsettling. I just kept thinking all those little cotton strands getting stuck on the inside of the skin. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I've been there. That, that's well, I'm, I'm sure the, Spur, the Sperling Institute knows how to deal with that sort of thing. <laughs> that's why they, that's, <laughs> that's right. they specializing in decottening. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, the grafts are sent out to be prepared a month later. She's still recovering at heart. He, he's taken his leave. He's uh, loading his burnt-up bike into the trunk of a vehicle and uh, uh, licking his wounds. He's still got to do a little... Can I interject something? There's a scene sure. that you skipped over, um, which is the one, it's a sequence of short, of short scenes where Keloy tells the recuperating heart that Rose is doing well. Um, and he's very much the portrait of kindly medical concern in this scene. Yes, and he promises that he'll call Hart as soon as anything, as soon as she wakes up and all that other stuff. Mm, yes, but the thing yeah. that, that struck me here was the Hart makeup goes into Rose's room. Uh, she's lying there, in theory comatose. But did you notice what's happening under her eyelids? How her eyes are moving? It looks yeah, like she's, she's in REM. To be in REM. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She appears to be dreaming. Uh, and this, I think, may be significant, or may have been. A, this may not be an accidental detail. It may be a suggestive of something that's happening underneath um, that we will we then can look at later. And see. Yeah, yeah. With her waking sequence, I think it 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 adds to that. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, no, no, good point. So, yeah, he, he uh, removes the bike. He goes out to uh, return home and, well, I, I guess rebuild the bike. I, I don't know what I would do with it. it. It seems like it would be something I'd be conflicted with, right? Because he has a bit inside of him of this turmoil. Like, he, she may die and it may be his fault, right? Mm -hmm. And what, then what is that bike a symbol of? It's uh, it's a little tricky. So you see him trying to like work on it, but at the same time he, he's a little conflicted. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, Faustus, like you said, where we we cut back to Rose in the middle of the night, and she uh, is thrashing about a bit, and she wakes up and just screams. And it's it is a blood curdling scream. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's. Uh... As it's far as method one. goes, man, I mean, she she could be up there with the other uh, uh, sissy SpaceX and other scream queens of, of horror. Uh, and she she wakes up one of her uh, roommates, I, I guess. Or no, this guy, there. this is Lloyd, right? Yeah, Lloyd, he's already yep. awake and he's walking down the hallway with a cigarette and then a holder. Oh yes, yes, right. So you know he's a rich prick right off the bat doing that. Yeah. And he sits down, he puts a cigarette out so he can look at himself in the mirror, and then he hears her scream, and then he runs into the room. Right, right. So he runs in there, and she, she uh, you know, complains. She's like, hey, you know, what's going on? Where am I? I'm so cold, you know, and she's shivering. 
and she she she, she uh, asks to be held. So Lloyd says, "Look, uh, it's me, your friend Lloyd," which is a weird line. I um, think what it is is because she's been there so long, and that they've been there that they kind of like, hey, you know, she's the coma woman, but we all know her. We all know her story. Everybody saw her in the motorcycle accident. I'm sure anybody there. That's the big big news that's going around at the dinner table that night for a couple of weeks. So maybe he's just saying that to try to comfort her and because he kind of feels like he does know her a little bit because he's seen her every day for a month. Or maybe not seen her every day for a month, but been aware of her being around every day for a month. And Lloyd is, sorry, and um, Hart's been going in and out of the clinic as well, so he might yes. know the people. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, that, that's I guess right, that yeah, he probably sense. got friendly with Hart and then through that way he figures he knows her. Well, plus you say I'm your friend, uh, then that implies I'm, I'm not a threat, right? Uh, which he certainly isn't a threat, because she says, uh, "Hey, you know, I, I'm so cold here. Just can you, can you hold me?" And so he does, um, however is, reluctantly. Yeah, not the smartest move you can do. No, no. Uh, why would he have any fear in his heart about this, though? Plus, she's naked, so that's less of a threat. Yep, yep. Uh, and it's. Uh, he then complains of a pain. He says, "Ah, you know, he, he reacts violently as, as though he'd been stabbed, and he he says as much." He, yeah, he says, "Do you have a knife like, down there?" Have a knife? I, I got stabbed, and they have a. It, it's it's a very sexual of of the the feeding scenes, which we'll come to find. That's what she is doing here. This is one of the more sexual scenes. Uh, look at the, look at look at uh, Marilyn's face as she's as she's as as we later find she's feeding on him. Although we don't now know this at this point, right? Kind it's of like very the first time. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it. She appears to be in the throes of passion, and he uh, uh, is uh, in 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 tremendous pain. Uh, which, when when acted out just on your face, it's it's hard to tell the difference. Uh, and I think that that's kind of in, intentional here. So we we catch that Lloyd is is bleeding, uh, and it's under his arm. So so immediately you you look at this and it's like okay, well maybe it's a vampire scenario. She bit into him, but no, you you don't immediately see where the yeah, attack. Yeah, because what's crazy about from. it is exactly it's not from any place that you would ever expect, like a vampire to be biting somebody. You've never seen, as far as I know, there's no monsters or anything like that that have like a fucking stinger underneath their fucking armpit that comes out and gets you. Yeah, and we'll, we'll learn what it is specifically, kind of, later. For now, it's kind of left it as a mystery. So. Yeah, it's just a weird spot for somebody to get uh, stabbed or something have happened to them. Yeah, yeah, and they're trying to determine what happens as well because. Lloyd is stumbling around right. in in the hospital, and they find him. They 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 bring him in and, and try to determine what's going on. And yeah, and he says he, he can't remember anything. He, nice right, icky, icky examination, um, and the bleeding continues, which I think is a nice touch because it, it takes off of a lot of blood sucking insects, for example, like mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep, inject inject anticoagulants into their targets uh, so that they can. You know, feed more efficiently, and this seems to be going on here as well. 
Yeah, which is funny because I, I don't remember where I read this, but... So wait a second. Maybe when they sent that off to the Sterling Institute, a mosquito got stuck in the uh, the tissue. <laughs> Maybe they teleported it to the Sterling Institute <laughs> yeah. and a mosquito flew it's in. It's not going to take a month to teleport it there and back, is uh, it? No. Well, no. it's 1977. The teleportation uh, technology is a little inefficient. Yeah, it could have been uh, dial-up teleport. Wasn't what it was now. Uh no, but but uh, what what I think is interesting, like you said, is I, I forget where I read it, but I, I guess one of the working titles of this when he was originally writing it was Mosquito, and wow, that, I've read that too. I've yeah, been, I yeah. I don't know that that's confirmed or not, but it makes sense with the the coagulant, the the proboscis that that she uses. Um, take it for what it is. So he says, yeah, I, I uh, as well as I, he can't remember anything, he also can't feel anything on his right side. Except uh, the which, tingles. Yes. Yeah, which leads them to believe that uh, he's had a stroke. So the, the uh, uh, doctor instructs his assistant, he says, hey, uh, look, plug him up, don't give him any uh, uh, coagulants, though, and in fact, take out 10 cc's of his blood, for us to keep here for testing. Well, and he this says is take where... it from the wound directly. Yes. And this is where I wonder, like you were saying, Faustus, maybe about the intent of the doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the, the, the saying, don't use the coagulant, I'm not sure what, what that helps, uh, as well as taking the blood before they send him out. Well, it's... I think he doesn't want to use the coagulant because they're going to send him to the, uh, the hospital. He says he's getting an EKG. Right? right, and if you put right. a coagulant in, that's going to fuck up the EKG. That's true. So yeah. I think that's the main reasoning on that. No, that I don't think sense. he has any concern with trying to keep this guy around because, as far as he he has no idea that you know Rose is responsible for this, and Rose is his prized patient. So you know yeah, he's going to maybe true. lie and say the hospital is four hours away to keep her, but this guy's just a distraction. So. All right, ship him up to the hospital that's half an hour down the road. Right, he's dispatching his aide to go look around the gardens, um, or so the grounds, to see if the guy fell somewhere. Did you notice the poster in the background of the uh, examination room? No, I didn't. What, what was it? It's, uh, it's, it's Da Vinci's Vitruvian Man. Oh, oh yeah, I saw that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's sort I... of this, this, this symbol of rationality and order. Right. And, uh, it's all about to get blown up. Oh, yeah, yeah, especially when they return to Rose's room, mm-hmm. uh, where it is splattered with blood, and she's just kind of laying there, and, and he, as he walks in, the assistant says, don't don't touch anything, because it is possible that Lloyd might have come in and attempted to molest her in her coma. Yep, this is the Nurse Rita line. Rita, yes. Yep. Yeah, Nurse Rita's seen some shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've seen it before. And this is a hint of the, of the universe's psychology as well, right? With sex being this lawless, mad, furious master. Uh, yes. It's some, why she's seen it before. Yeah, it's... Uh, to to be sexual is to be threatening, mm-hmm. right? And it, it, it's we're, we're setting it up for what, what will definitely come later. So again, Rose in the middle of the night wakes up and she uh, removes her IV. Right, and, yep. and gets gets dressed and, and wanders out of the hospital. And, you're, uh, you're missing a scene with Judy, the introduction of Judy Glassberg, though. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, Judy Glassberg comes in. Okay, right? g- sorry, go ahead. Do you want me to narrate it? Basically, 
Uh, Louise, who's sitting in the front, sees a young woman walk by and says, Hey, it's Judy Glassberg. You're back. Judy Glassberg is a young a young woman. Oh, yeah. Faustus, I uh, want to ask you about this because I don't think right? you'll know. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I, I'll try. She's walking in. She's become, you know, she's there because her father wants more work done on her nose. Yes. Uh, yeah, he doesn't says, like the way it came out the last time. It says it, it looks exactly, she says, well, it looks exactly like yours. And he says, well, that's the problem. Yeah. Uh, and that's why he wanted it changed. Um, and she's holding, you know, uh, up for dear um, Nurse Louise's view, a co- paperback copy of Ernst Jones's The Life and Work of Sigmund Freud. Yes. <laughs> um, and she says, she has a line where she says, I'm terrified to find out what it really means. Yes, I have it written down. And is she talking about the book itself or the fact that her father keeps sending her to get plastic surgery to change the way that she looks because she looks too much like him? I've been, I've been thinking about this at some length, and I think that either reading might be possible. On the one hand, you know, there's a thought since that maybe what Judy is terrified of is that there's some kind of implied Jewish self-hatred running through her family, um, because a too big or wrongly shaped nose is often thought of as a physical marker of being Jewish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is something that Freud, who is a pretty co- who has whose relationship to his own Jewishness is complex, to put it mildly. Um, you know, would certainly have been familiar with. Now, on a deeper level, possibly it's a reference to the fact that she's holding a book about the works of Sigmund Freud, uh, which I think is actually, it's a real book, uh, by the way. Ernst Jones was one of the first American psychoanalysts and was a student of Freud's. Uh, and Cronenberg may be dropping a hint here about what kind of psychology he's buying into for for the for the purpose of the movie. That's what I. That's that's the best guess I can make, um, Tim, as to what's going on here. Yeah, because it's it, just a it really very, a weird line that just like comes out of left a, field. It is genuinely an enigmatic line, but Freud, but Freud is sort of like a primary exponent in the modern era of this sort of demon within psychology. Um, yes, you know, maybe something that's also kind of terrifying. And that's exactly that's why it's great because it can go both ways. That's that's what she's terrified of finding out about that there's demons inside of everybody, yep. or. There's something going on with the father, which again goes back to Freud. Yep. Well, yeah, because both instances are just kind of examples of, of Freud's idea that the, the personality is just the tip of the iceberg of who you really are as, a, as a, an individual. And, and again, it's the res, you're constrained by your uh, physiology. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well. So that's, I, I think, a lot with, with Cronenberg's work is if the parasite is part of you and, and moving you, then you are the parasite and it, it, it is your personality, right? It's that finding that duality and, and the fact that they are actually uh, fundamentally enmeshed because he's, everything he writes is, is very, very uh, atheistic, right? There's no spirituality really to be found in, in uh any of, of his work. It's mm-hmm. it's all very much about the biological, the physical, and the flesh. He's a famous he's a famous atheist, really. I mean mm-hmm. you know, his his basic book on, on religion is called The Future of an Illusion. Uh <laughs> and that will tell you what you kinda need to know about what he thought yep. about that. Uh, Sums that right up. Yep. So now we're back to we're back to Rose, right? Yes. Yeah. So she she goes uh she decides she's gonna uh, go out and do some hunting. Uh well, she doesn't decide this. She's compelled to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she, she leaves the hospital. Goes out into this cold late autumn rain. These are beautiful shots, by the way. Oh, so um, beautiful. Uh, you know, it's like, it's like pre-dawn, uh, deep blue, 
with like the, the it's it's wet outside, but it's cold, and you can see lights reflecting off the slick of the road and the mud. It really is something. It's remarkable what they got here. Um, yeah, and it's no, remarkable it's, it's, how it's it contrasts. It's remarkable yeah. how it's about to contrast with what we're about to see. Yeah, because we're we're going from this uh, the this beautifully framed shot into uh, interior barn. Uh, it's, it looks like any sort of a rundown area. Like you, you don't anticipate anybody, but lives here. It, it looks as though it's something that's been long abandoned. This is where everybody goes to hang out and get drunk and high. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, and, they and do so that in Canada, right? Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Drink your Molson's. I don't know about the getting, well, maybe getting high. I don't know. Um, so she wanders into the barn, and inside she uh, she sees a cow, which is uh, you know sleeping on a pile of hay. And this seems to me, I think this is probably one of her most lucid attempts at, at feeding. Right? I think she's trying to make amends with what she is in, in a very. Uh, uh, well, trying to rationalize it at the very least. So she attempts to, uh, she first goes up and, and strokes the cow and uh, then feeds from it, right? Mm-hmm. And immediately we're setting up the rules here, which is this does not work for no, her. No, she needs human blood. Um, yeah, it, it nauseates her and she vomits the the blood up very very violently into the corner so now okay we figured it out she she has to feed off the human blood so any any semblance of the uh not being forced into uh a weird kind of vampiric cannibalism that that's over yeah because at least with vampires they can drink technically they can drink rat's blood right uh, depending depends, upon depends the your mythology. vampire mythology, I think that like in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, they drink pig's blood. Um, it's just kind of like, in that's because it's like kind of like drinking two dollar wine versus a hundred dollar bottle of wine. If push comes to shove, yeah. you can drink the night train, <laughs> but you prefer to have the nice bottle of wine. It's like yeah. being a, ve- a vegetarian as opposed to like you know or something. Ovo lacto vegan. Yeah, yeah. So uh, no, she's she's neither of these. She's uh, all about that human. So she vomits that up, and just then, lucky Fred, for her, <laughs> lucky for her, Fred stumbles in. Yep. Uh, our terrible mustache, by the way, if Daniel's listening, this guy's mustache is. What is this abysmal. guy's story? Is he just wandering around in the rain? I think it's looking... his farm. Don't you? He's coming. Yeah. It's yeah. like four a.m. Oh, he, he's a shit. farmer. He gets up, he's like to, coming in to milk the cows or whatever farmers do and, at 4 a.m. And uh, here he finds Marilyn Chambers in his barn. It's a lucky farmer. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, not like, so this lucky. This usually happens to my daughter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, no, of course, he, he drunkenly uh, attempts to force himself on her yeah he says to her he grabs her and she has blood all around her mouth and he says you have blood on your mouth you like me don't you yeah which yeah that's might be something that might give you a bit of a pause you turn around yeah. a woman and she's got blood all over her mouth but eh, he's committed 
Well, yeah, I mean, he's he's uh, he's seen nature and all, all its beauty and all its cruelty, so he's not opposed to this. Uh, but she is, so she she it, it gets appears him. she snaps his neck. No, she doesn't. She's, no, she's I was going to say, wait a second. Well, she, she does. She she grabs she's, the. Back he's still of his head. he's still alive later in the movie, so she can't have done that. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, the the copy of it that I have, it was a little difficult to see specifically what she did. She did feed off of him. I know that because he does return at the barbecue place. Yep. But uh, there's like a head-twisting, neck-snapping motion that she does. I'm not sure what they were trying to convey with it. Plus, also, doesn't she kind of like feed pretty quickly on him? She seems to she, feed pretty quickly on almost everyone she encounters. Yeah, just in general. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Later on, there's one where it looks like, it's kinda well, like she's kind of been doing it for a while. Yeah, with her roommate, definitely. Spoiler um, alert. Yeah. Well, friend. No, who knows? So, anyhow. Um, yeah, she she feeds off of him and then sneaks back into the hospital. Yep. So yeah, we cut just back her to, uh, nightgown and uh, boots. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's cold out. I mean, you, have, you can't be barefoot out there. Come on. <laughs> so, we cut back to Hart and he's restoring the motorcycle. And uh, he's... Listening to the horniest fucking song ever. I yeah, the soundtrack on this. He unfortunately everybody watch this part of the movie with this fucking subtitles on and listen to the lyrics of this fucking song. Yeah, unfortunately, Cronenberg hadn't met his uh, musical muse uh, and 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 lifetime friend for for the remainder of his career. Yes, of Howard Shore, of course. Well, isn't Ivan Reitman the the music supervisor on this? That's true. Yeah, that this is a Reitman call. I guess we have to. I guess he wasn't the right man for the job. I can do the music. And uh, not not the best. So. We see a, a dripping, shivering rose trying to call him. And it's, you know, uh, echoing against the, the walls with no answer. The, the yeah, phone. he's fixing the bike up. So this is, this is a running, running theme with Hart. He's never in the right place at the right time. No. no uh, he's he... pretty, pretty cool poster of Peter Fonda on the wall, though. Yeah, that's true. Uh, again, going some back of, to some kind of ironic commentary on Hart, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. And, and uh, it's funny too because Cronenberg also talks about uh, the use of phones for important conversations in this. He he noticed that uh, that wasn't a thing that was really going on in film back in 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 that era. And he said, you know, how many important conversations I've had on the phone. We're going to see a lot of that take place in this movie. Yep. Yes, um, very phone-heavy movie. Again, very prescient of him. Um, so, she can't get in touch with him. But, uh, hey, what are you going to do? Well, I guess it's time to time to go check back in on Lloyd, who seems like he's doing better. He uh, has regained mobility. He's able to move his arm and, and his leg. And he says, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm still bleeding a little. It's not too bad. Yeah, I, it's I'll just a just... trickle. He's, he's yeah. his, his roommate in this hospital in Montreal is telling him, I don't think you should be leaving. And he says, I'm fine. The roommate's played by an actor named Robert A. Silverman, who I know appears in Jason X. And he's probably, mm. got, the most, wow. he the most, he's probably got the most Canadian accent ever. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
and he's smoking. I couldn't yeah, believe I saw that in the fucking hospital. This guy is smoking like a chimney. <laughs> I guess it was just different in 1977. You could, yeah. you could in 1977, you could still smoke on the subways. And yep. I remember when I was really young, people actually smoking in fucking elevators. Yeah. Well, I remember my first job as a cook, I could smoke, and you could smoke in, in the, the restaurant. It was... While you're cooking? Yeah, yeah. Wow. They didn't okay. care. Yeah. You know. <laughs> uh, so it was a different time. And, yep. and he says, yeah, I'm, I'm bleeding a little. I'll, uh, also, but i, I got to get out of here. You can yeah, also... What's... You can also just walk out of a walk out of a hospital and leave without anyone asking what you're doing. Well, uh, it's Canadian healthcare. He doesn't have to worry about paying a bill. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, the and only this reason guy's they ready stop to cover for him because he's like, "Hey, when the night nurse comes in, I'll just tell her you're in the can." That's a good friend to have. Yeah, yeah. that's a weird friend to have. Somebody's going to do all that shit for you. You've been in the hospital room with them. Well, he makes friends easily in the hospital. Hell, he was friends with uh, Rose, and he never even spoke to her. Well, that's right. So. Not too friendly. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of getting friendly with Rose, oh, man. We cut to but Judy. After after we see, of course, Lloyd just walk out of the hospital and get in the cab. Yeah. Say, take me to Camelford. And then this it seems like he's trying to get back to the clinic because Camelford is the, fiction, the name of the fictional town or district or wherever, where the clinic is located uh, oh interesting so why would he want to go back to the town though he seems we, to be wanting to get away and like get out of the hospital and not have to deal with what's going on with them i don't really know um and we never really find out no he doesn't well, make it where he's going yeah maybe this is a little easter egg to to point out that his brain might not be functioning as well as his body yep uh just just kind of doing patterns and what it remembers so, we we cut to uh, Judy. Yep. In the hot tub, and uh, you know it's 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 a nice clinic. So yeah, you got some muscle aches, I understand. And Rose walks in, and Faustus, I believe this is the scene you commissioned for the the artwork for, the, for this for episode the, for the cover art. Yes, that's right. Wow! Got, uh, All right, that's all yeah, Faustus. We got we got. Uh, we got um, we got Lucy Fidelis to do this. Um, basically, we have uh, we have Rose walking in in, in her just just wearing only this thin cotton gown or dress, and it's a very strangely sexual scene because she really advances hard on Judy. Yeah, and Judy picks it up right away that there's yep. something going on here. Yeah, this is yeah. somebody who's just coming in the hot tub with me. Yep. Yeah, Judy's like, well, yeah, you're, you're walking in here in that. You're kind of walking toward me. She's I'm getting a little pruney here. Maybe I should probably go, but she Truly. really doesn't get that opportunity. Rose says, well, you haven't even told me your name yet. And then grabs her, pins her under the, the water. Well, no, he, well, here's another scene that's a little bit weird. She says, you haven't told me your name yet. And she says... Judy, Judy Glassberg. Glassberg, and as soon as she finishes Glassberg, bang, she's right on her and kills her. Yep. 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 It's interesting why to want the name before the kill. That that one I didn't. I didn't. I don't have a theory on. It's an odd cut. Uh, and it's again, also odd to say your whole first name. Why don't you just say my name is Judy, and I'm here because I need a nose job, and uh, giving your whole fucking name. 
But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's probably one of the most sexual scenes in the whole movie. Because she Very, struggled. Yeah. They struggle together in the water, um, you know, which is obviously sort of an ecstatic scene for, uh, for Rose. And it ends with her sort of like, you know, over Judy's half drowned, half exsanguinated body. Blood is billowing into the water. And she has this blissful look on her face. And at one point, doesn't it look like the blood is kind of coming out of Judy's leg? Didn't catch that. Or is that, the blood just be. running down her leg? Yeah. Yeah, could have been running down. We, we don't... It's weird because you get kind of the half above and half below water shot. So, so the angles and the light is, is a little interesting. But And also it's slow motion right at the end. So I think that's what's adding more like kind of like a sex thing going on with it because it's like mm-hmm. this that's where she's having an orgasm. It's the well, only, right, well, it's... There's only one other instance in the whole movie where there's slow motion going on. And it, Right, and it's like in the last couple of scenes with, with Rose feeding, she was the uh, receptive positioned kind of partner. She she was hugging or embracing or or even with the uh, uh, the farmer attempting to rape her, she just kind of reached up. This is finally where we see Rose uh, kind of taking over, taking control. Yeah, because up until this point, all the other ones kind of like came to her. And presented yes. themselves to her and gave her the opportunity to do it. One being innocuous and trying to help with, I'm your friend. And the other one with being a motherfucker with, I'm going to try to rape you. But you're right. This is the one where she's consciously making the decision. And she's going to go after this woman and kill her. Yeah. Well, uh, making the decision or being compelled to make the decision. It's, But does it matter? At the end of the day, if all of the, the decisions that you make and all of the, the actions that you take are, are being motivated from things that are inside of you, disease, or you. I mean, you are the disease. So, either way, it's kind of your choice. So, now we cut to uh, Lloyd in the cab. He's grunting and he's sweating. And he's he's not feeling too good. Hey, you okay, buddy? <laughs> no, they, yeah, this whole guy's giving a whole fucking routine about, hey, yeah. So I told my friend, you know, you got to be a little bit more tough with your wife. You know what's going on, huh? Yeah, uh, he's a good cab driver, but it doesn't work out for him. Uh, Lloyd has transformed. He's yeah. This uh, is a great scene. This might be one of the best parts of the whole movie. Yeah, yeah, because now we finally get to see the we've got the the vampire kind of thing working with Rose, and we've got the um, the kind of the creeps or or the the rage. Uh, zombie, quote unquote. It always seems that you can tell by their eyes that one of their eyes is kind of like fucked up and oozing shit. Yes. So we'll get it with the oozing of the green or yellowish fluid, which they don't really explain um, the cause of it. But then the foaming of the mouth, of course, and he, he attacks the driver. And so... it's a spectacular fucking crash. Mm-hmm. Again, this is uh, <laughs> Cronenberg loves his cars and he loves to crash them. There'll be a whole movie on this coming. Yeah, called Crash. <laughs> <laughs> this scene apparently almost killed Cronenberg, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, because he was he was he was he was doing he was doing his own cinematography, and he was watching the scene happen through a telephoto lens, and it didn't he misjudged oh, the distance between the approaching oh, car. Shit. And where he Holy was. Holy shit. So he, he, he had a very narrow escape, apparently. Oh, thank God. Man. Yeah, because this That's... fucking car does a flip, lands <laughs> on its side, goes down the fucking road about 100 feet, then goes off a fucking bridge, 
and gets smashed by a fucking truck. Falls in front of a truck. (laughs) You're dead, motherfucker. Yep. God, it's a phenomenal So the first chance that the government or authorities would have had to find out what was going on and maybe get a head start on it has now been nipped right in the bud because he's just, there's two dead people in a taxi when there's a car accident. Yep. Yep, their bodies mangled beyond recognition, I'm assuming. So we cut back to Rose, and finally she gets a hold of her heart. Uh, she gets on the phone with him and says, Listen, I'm, I'm in trouble. I need you to come and get me. Uh, and one of the doctor's assistants comes in and stops her during this call. Uh, uh, to which heart gets Nurse, you know, Nurse Rita, uh, I think, actually stops. Nurse Rita yeah. again, yeah. yes, oh. yeah. Um, so Nurse Rita stops her from from the, from making this call. She's like, "Hey, you're up. You're doing things. We we need to you know figure out what's going on here. Uh, I'm going to go get Doctor Keloid here to to talk to you and, and take a look at you." But Hart is uh, um, well. He's a bit disturbed by this, right? But, understandably she's far away she's in some strange clinic that he doesn't know what's going on and she called him in a panic yeah as far as he knows she's been in a coma for a month right yeah who who wouldn't be be worried so we uh we have a a phone call with murray who who he knows somehow well murray gave him the ride home yeah murray gave him the ride home yeah with the the bike Um, apparently they're friends, and, and Murray is sitting on a couch with a baby, uh, <laughs> sipping his tea. Lipton tea, probably, right? Yeah. It's yeah, filmed in the president, the CEO of Lipton's. I, I, love, the, been... I love this scene because he, Murray is narrating for the baby, explaining what's on the TV. And <laughs> it's sort of like a weird cartoon where you have like a, an anthropomorphic potato and an anthropomorphic tomato. Um and it's obviously there's some kind of affection there. And he says, see how Potato Man loves Ketchup Man? <laughs> yeah. I, 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 can't, I have never made sense of that line. There's something so charming about it. I think that's <clears throat> the entire point yep. of it. I don't think it's meant to make sense. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of humor in, in, the, in the interstices of this movie. And that's like yeah. an example. Well, again, it's just yeah. we later on see Murray's wife. And is she of childbearing age? No. Where they're going no. to have, how old is that baby? Maybe one year old? Maybe. It looks, like a, looks like about a nine-month-old baby to me. All right. Yep. And um, maybe he got that from the clinic. Could be, yeah. Uh, so, and, and I, I love that this, so Hart gives him a call and, and he fills him in on the whole Rose situation. He says, look, Rose just called me up. She's up at the clinic. She's freaking out. I have no idea what's going on up there. We need to, we need to figure this situation out. I'm sorry to call you for this. And, and poor Murray, like, can you imagine being this man? <laughs> you're like, sitting look, at home. You're trying to play with your baby that you probably kidnapped. Yeah. And this is like, job Because even when he says, Rose, she just called me. Murray goes, who? Yeah, who? Rose, you... Rose. How many roses do you know that this guy's going to be calling you about? Yeah, but Murray's fundamentally a good guy, I guess. And uh, he will help. Plus, if, even if it is a different Rose, a Rose by any other name is still a Rose. Oh, boy. Right. <laughs> no soundboard? No, no soundboard. <laughs> Sorry. Well, we got my... Uh... Coffee cup full of whiskey here. I think I'm going to take a 
Sip. <laughs> Speaking of guys, uh, want to take this five is your first to sip, mm, oh, boy. go get refills on our respective beverages. I think we're about halfway through. Sounds good. All right, All right back in five. Back in five. Take five, everybody. Hey, I win. Uh, all right, back in. All right, just waiting on Eddie. All right. Look at that. That's timing. Well, that's the most important aspect of comedy, my friend. That's true. Timing. It's all in timing. I've opened the window, so it's about to get more genuine in here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Faustus, what what kind of a rye are you drinking tonight? Um, yeah, I think it's just the. Who, who is it? It's the. I honestly don't remember. I drink so many different ones. That's a good problem to have. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like we are we really a podcast because we haven't talked about what beers we're drinking. It seems like every fucking podcast I listen to, the first uh, ten minutes of it is, "What kind yeah. of beer are you drinking?" Yeah. Everybody no, wants that, that beer okay. sponsorship, I guess. <laughs> yeah. For for pairs yeah. that no longer exist, like the Coors Banquet beer, or <laughs> well, Coors Banquet still exists. Yeah, so. I've, I've had Does it. it. Right. Oh yes. Now, is it You're the just original, going... or is it something that they just like re-released because it was something that people started asking for? I don't think anybody was demanding Coors Banquet, Tim. <laughs> hey, look, they, somebody posted on the Discord a fucking lock, uh, ice locker for uh, Coors Banquet. So there's a market. Oh, yeah, them. true, true. All right, let me get the notes back if to where we were. they sell it in the supermarket, people are buying it. Yeah, we were at Potato Man and Ketchup Man, who was a tomato. And probably not a man either, but... Yeah. Well, it's usually you know. aren't women tomatoes. It's 2020. Now it is. Not then it wasn't. Yeah. yeah. What a tomato. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Tim, you say tomato, I say tomato. Okay? Uh, my wife Let's says just tomato and it off. drives me crazy. But then she says potato. And I'm like, you know what? you got to be consistent. True. Very true. <clears throat> okay. So we're back at the doctor, and he wants to get a cheeky little look at that armpit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because uh, he wants to, he, well, he basically wants to take a look at where the, the skin grafts were done. Um, this is the first time he's checked in on her in quite a while, I guess. So, Well, hold on. I'm sorry. I think we just skipped over a big part, unless I'm completely blanking on it. Did we mention that when they're doing the operation, they mentioned that this is the first time that they're putting the grafts inside yes. of her, and yeah. it might cause her to have terminal cancer? Right. Yeah, That that is, they, they do mention that during the initial operation, that they've never done this particular type. So you've got that, the fact that it's the first time they're doing it internally, as well as, like, Lord knows whatever they're doing with the skin graft material. So it's experimental on experimental. No, no, you're right. We we did skip over that. Sorry. So 
she's um, reluctant to have him look at the her armpit, which makes sense. Uh, he asks her, well, what's the problem? Is it, like, painful? And she says, no, no. So he he, uh, he finally, we, we get... We get the look at it. And where Videodrome, James Woods had a uh, vaginal uh, chest mm-hmm. growth. Hers is uh, kind of more, more of a sphincter, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, when I saw this, I thought of Existens. Yeah. Because it looked like something yeah. you could perfectly jack your fucking video game machine into. Or jack something into. Yeah, it's uh, it was kind of a sphincter-y looking thing, and and uh, we we finally get to see it up up close and personal. And uh, as he's kind of uh, diddling around with it, it looks as though something underneath, uh, um, vaguely uh, uh, tissuey or, or sinewy and flesh-like, yeah, you tries always to have poke to ask out. a woman before you start diddling around that. Yeah. <laughs> You know, if if you were with a woman and that was the one spot she didn't want you to touch, Tim, that you that you'd be like, "Oh, come on, let me let me get up in them pits." Yeah, come on, it's a mystery, <laughs> right? Uh, forbidden fruit is the most tempting, right? So he asks her. He says, "Um, you know, how come you've been pulling your IV out? Right? You, this is your only source of food." And she says, uh, no, no, this is not my only source of food. He says, well, but you, I mean, are you feeling okay? Are you feeling weak? And she says, well, actually, I feel very strong. You notice how her demeanor changes radically. Yes. Mm-hmm. From this scene, to, from the previous scene to this one. She was weepy and, you know, very insecure. Now she seems surprisingly confident. Plus, also, Calm. is that a regular IV, or is it something special? Because when Lloyd, when he first goes into the room, and she's yelling and screaming when she first wakes up, she pulls the IV out, and he's like, no, no, you need that. That's the juice that's keeping you alive. Yes. And I'm wondering, is that yeah. some kind of, like, chemical that they're pumping her into, like, maybe, like, you know, um, what is it, when you get a new organ, you have, you have to take an antibiotic so your body doesn't reject it, and maybe that's something else that's going on? Yeah, it's never really um, uh, clarified to us what what specifically is in the IV, but no. To, and to your point, Faustus, yeah, I'm mean, even in this scene, right? Initially, she's so hesitant to even let him take a look at the armpit, and then all of a sudden, yeah, her demeanor just shifts. She says, "No, you know what? It's uh, I have a new source for food, and well, and I'll show you." And then she, uh, yeah, decides she's going to take a nice little uh, armpit bite feed off of the the good Dr. Keloid. Yep, I have written down quite the stinger, music and all. (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh, and I think this is one of the first times we we get a good look, kind of. Uh, Yes, this is the first time you see the the thing that's projecting out of her tuchus-type thing. And we haven't really discussed it yet, but it, it's a, um, it's kind of a phallic proboscis that that sticks out. I know if you've ever heard people talk about this movie, they they kind of go on and on about that. Uh, 
in that it's it's a perversion of what we understand sexuality to be. Well, because she has the dick and she's penetrating all these men. Right. Against their will. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't think of too many men who would want to be fed upon this way, so... Uh, <laughs> Don't kink shame. Yeah. But here, here, yeah, this is the, this is now where we're beginning to get the sense. I have a thought about what may have happened to Rose here in terms of body horror. Okay. Cronenberg and commentary suggest that the explanation for why this is going on is physiological need. That what happened to Rose was that her digestive tract was largely destroyed by the fire from the motorcycle. And so that she's evolved, so to speak, an alternative means of feeding made possible by the glaft of the pluripotent cells that was done by Dr. Keloid. Right. Holy but shit. I'm not, I'm not sure I actually buy this. Um, because if the cells could become anything... You know, anything that have, she needs. And if her not, digestive tract is all fucked up, she needs another way of being able to ingest food. Right. Now, there is a possibility, of course, well, why not just regenerate a digestive tract? Um, now, well, here's an alternative possibility. Because you need what? That's like 26 fucking miles of intestines versus a anus and something that looks like a dick? Right. I mean, like, the idea is that blood is very easy to, to process and digest. But there's also a possible psychological explanation here, which is that there is an inner self to Rose that we don't see at first, but that it is raging away at the world that she lives in. Uh, I mean, who is really fulfilling her erotic needs anyway? Hart Reed? Don't make oh, me laugh. Oh, no, 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 no. That's right. Um, the accident and the transplantation of pluripotent cells is simply an opportunity for this demonic manifestation to manifest itself, which it does. So that's an alternative theory of what's going on. Um, that's the demon. And that thing. kind of ties back in with Freud, doesn't it? It does. Hmm, yeah, exactly. Wow. Shit. See, that's a good fucking movie where there's like fucking 18 different fucking explanations that could be going on, and each one of them is a pretty good idea. Yeah, and, and, and another one that is mentioned is uh, to, to the the physiology of the vampire bat. Basically, if she lost that amount of her uh, uh, intestinal tract, then any kind of food that she could take in and, and uh, gain nourishment from it... Has it. to be something she can get quick. Right, and blood fits that need, which is why the vampire bat uh, feasts on blood. Because it, it meets those uh, immediate calorie demands. Um, and man, I'll tell you what. When I have an immediate calorie demand. my mind. The first thing I think about some barbecue chicken. <laughs> yeah, wait a second. I had that written down. <laughs> barbecue chicken. The guy goes from raping somebody to, yeah, I want some barbecue chicken. Let's, yeah. let's get the context here, okay? We're at a diner. It's the morning. Yeah. Pickup truck pulls out. The drunken farmer guy who we saw earlier staggers out. He's wearing sunglasses. Um, and he staggers into the diner. He sits down next to another very Canadian man, uh, whose mm. name is given as Sam, and tears into Sam's takeout order. Yeah, because he orders half of a barbecue chicken. And it's yeah. one of the most Canadian things I've ever seen. They bring Sam's food out. He reaches over, grabs Sam's food, starts eating it. And the guy looks at him and says, uh, hey, buddy, I think that's actually my order. You know, but if you like it, you it. can still eat it. Just uh, next yeah, time goes, you just no, ask buddy. me, maybe. 
No, buddy, I don't want to cause any trouble here, uh, but I think you're eating my food. <laughs> <laughs> wow, the fucking truck drivers in Canada are still polite. God yeah. damn. Cops yeah. are very polite, too, as we'll find out. Oh, yeah, yeah, very. Well, at first, uh, this is the military that's yeah. not. So he gets up, Fred does, and, and tries to leave because he's, he's devouring this chicken. But it seems like he's just like, look, I'm starving. I'm hungry. I've got to eat. But this is not meeting his demands. No, he's and, has some uh, kind of hunger and he's trying to satisfy it. Yep. And he doesn't know that eating somebody's barbecue chicken at 8 o'clock in the morning is going to do it for him. And Sam says, hey, man, it looks like you're uh, bleeding. Uh, there's a problem here. Also, by the way, I never hit a man with glasses. I know. And he says, this... I don't hit nobody with glasses. And takes his, uh, hey. his shades off. And this is a classic thing. I haven't heard somebody talk about not hitting a person with glasses in years. That is such, yeah, that's like, I think that's like something like, that's like, like a, the 50s. That's like... That's like a Batman thing, isn't it? I mean, you know, yeah. television Batman. Well, isn't it that you don't? Is it that you don't want to break the? Because back then they were actual glasses, right? You, precisely, and you didn't you want to break, break the glass them, into and their you eyes. You could break them into somebody's fucking eye or fuck up your fist. But I'm thinking it's more like I'm going to beat the shit out of you, but I'm not. I don't want to blind you, so take them off. It's a matter of having decorum. We we don't use mustard gas anymore, and, and serrating your bayonet is considered a war crime. I'm not going to punch a man with glasses on. Plus, also, isn't it like when two guys are duking, getting ready to duke it out, and one of them has glasses, and if that guy takes his glasses off, that means that's it? The fight's getting oh. ready to start right then and there? That's true, yeah. If I, if you see me, and I, I, I'll put on glasses and then take them off, you know I'm about ready to fucking throw down. Yeah, so that, that even goes, I guess that goes both ways. That somebody wouldn't want to punch somebody with glasses, and if you have glasses on, you don't want to get punched while you have them on. Yeah, it's how you let somebody know. It's your signal that you're ready to fight, but... We take the glasses off and we see that he's missing his eye. So clearly she fed on him through his eye, uh, damaging his brain. But I don't... But was it his eye? Because later on, everybody else has fucked up eyes. I don't think so. I think that's just like a side effect. Well, he's missing an eye, though, right? Uh, Yes, I saw that. Uh, How the fuck did he end up missing the eye? But when when the whole shit goes down in the barn, it doesn't look like his head gets anywhere near her fucking armpit. She's not putting him in a headlock and then eye-fucking him. Tim, you don't know how well hung she is. Well, that's true. You just see, you know. <laughs> it's not the, uh, we don't get the director's cut. God damn it. Yeah, so now she, uh, or, or he, well, he goes crazy in the diner. He bites the waitress, he, he bites Sam, and then he breaks out. Um, and we're seeing slowly this infection is spreading, Right. Um, we're seeing the wake and the, the consequence of her actions. Now it's just now starting to to extend out. Yeah, is this where we're starting to hear it on the radio newscast or not yet? We'll get very close to that soon. First we have the the, the notorious surgery scene, right? Oh, God, oh, yeah, this surgery yes. scene. So wonderful. And you know what? I, I Because I, I watched it with some people that, that were a bit younger and... and I guess if you've seen like Rob Zombie's work and you've seen some of the the, the more modern like Saw movies and stuff, mm-hmm. watching a scene like this doesn't necessarily ring as uh, as horrific 
as it did back in the day. Well, that's the thing is you have to watch certain things in the context of when they were made. Precisely, yes. And yes. there's no no fucking movie did this before. When Alien came out, there was no fucking chest bursters before. So that shit was fucking shocking. The Exorcist today, when people watch it, is it really that shocking to people? Yeah. So we're back at the hospital docks scrubbing up. Um, and there's a lot of scenes of them scrubbing up, and they do a good job of it, which I appreciate. I think I mentioned last night when we were doing the live watches that this is the very first time I've ever seen where doctors are scrubbing up, and you see how they turn the water and on and off with their legs instead of their hands. Yeah, yeah. and they scrub up with the iodine and everything. So uh, then the doc goes in to perform the, the surgery, and we see that he's uh, shaky, right? His, yeah, and his, the nurse, uh, is that uh, the head nurse? No, no, no. Nurse Reed is outside. This is another nurse. Yeah. And what's crazy also is you could, right off the bat, from when they're doing the wash up, she knows there's something wrong with the doctor. Because she's like, you know, we could, me and the other doctor, we can do this. And he's like, no, it's fine and everything like that. And throughout the whole thing, she just keeps clocking him. And she knows there's something wrong, but she doesn't fucking stand up and say anything at all because I guess she's just the nurse and he's the doctor. Well, she's his wife. Oh, fuck. Is that her? Okay, um, so and, she disappeared um, from the movie and then it, just it, came back in this part. It, it is a little weird, but he looks like he's badly hungover or has the flu or something. Uh, but what's crazy also is he fucking actually finishes the surgery because the next thing we see is he's fucking putting the stitches in. Right. Yeah, he's, he's uh, I, I don't know, I guess correcting the guy's ear. Uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, he's stitching the ear back on and, and he, so he says, uh, he's shaking as he's trying to do the stitch and she asks if she can do the, the stitch for him and he says no, no, it's fine, I, I just need uh, scissors and he gets the scissors something to he, cut, he's very confused he says something to cut with and so he says, yeah, uh, yeah. scissors, yeah, scissors well yeah, also, life. and the way that he says it and she has it's like, now isn't the time for you to be using the scissors almost, mm-hmm. but she still gives it to him yeah. And what's interesting is, I'm just realizing now, so whoever gets bit by this, it doesn't affect your ability to do stuff. It just makes you extremely hungry to the point where you realize that you need blood and then you bite somebody else. Because the truck driver was able to drive his truck. Lloyd was able to get into a taxi and go- try to go someplace, I guess, until he got so hungry. And this doctor just fucking performed ear surgery on somebody before he fucking loses it. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems like it's a, a rapidly advancing degenerative um, virus, potentially. So yeah, he uh, gets the scissors and uh, reaches over with them and well, cuts her finger off. Yep, with the scissors. Great scene. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's pretty fucking horrific. And then he, he leans over and just starts biting her yep. hand uh, and then tear-assing through everybody else who's in this clean, sterile, safe place of healing and ripping them apart and succinctly biting them and infecting every one of them. It's utter chaos. Um, and the chaos... Rose takes advantage of this and just pulls out an IV, steals some clothes, and flees. Yeah, no, it's great timing for Rose. Yep. She she sneaks right out. Yeah, perfect. Use the chaos to get right out. 
Cronenberg in commentary said that he heard that at least 20 young boys in Quebec fainted watching this particular scene. <laughs> Only boys, he said. Only not girls. And some explained it as castration anxiety. So, uh, Well, yeah, the finger getting cut off. More, more Freud, for those of you who want some more Freud. Yep. Sometimes and and a victory a for the women. Yep. <laughs> so now we, get so. To, now we get to Cypher and Hart driving down the road with a report on the radio about the attack at mm-hmm. the diner. Someone there's what? a dis- dispute about whose order was was coming up next or whatever, uh, and yeah, you know, so they're reporting it as yeah, this guy's. Yeah, so now it's kind of starting to get now it's starting to get picked up by the news. Yep, mm-hmm. I love the and, way and, Mur- Murray's comment to Hart as they're driving by, because they drive right by the diner as the yeah. reports on the radio, and he says, "Hey, you want to go in for a bite?" Yeah, Murray has got some fucked up lines because when Murray is driving Hart home from the hospital that day, he puts his motorcycle on the back. He goes, what are you going to do with it? Make it an ashtray? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like, well, yeah, they, uh, they, the they, motorcycle they... that my girlfriend almost burned to death on, I'm going to make it an ashtray. Yeah. Well, you, you have to have a little gallows humor, Tim. Uh, or and one, might, funny... one might even say, in this case, mordant humor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's funny because they also say that it's uh, potentially rabies and that they vaccinated everybody. Right? Right. So... Now we see Rose, and, and she's uh, hitchhiking uh, as Hart is on his way to the to the doctor's office. And, well, we get to the doctor's office, and they, they She gets picked him. up, by the way, by someone who we'll later learn is a truck driver named Smooth Eddie. Smooth Eddie. Yes. Yeah. And Love you know what Smooth about Eddie. Smooth Eddie? Smooth Eddie always looks good. Always. Yeah. And look, I mean, he he offers her food. He gives her a fucking steak on a roll. Yep. That's a good sandwich. Yeah, that's a that's a steak on a bun. That's just got some fucking yeah. Uh, that'll stick to your ribs. That's some good eating but right she there. She can't He's keep just, it down. No, no, she can't. She uh, she doesn't like that food anymore. But she, she eats it. So taste. is she at this point? Is she still trying? Not to do what she has to do because otherwise, why would? Because she's like, I would love some, and she goes to eat it with some fucking gusto. Well, she's a carrier for the this disease, right? But but the the act of her hitchhiking, she has a place she's going to. This is still she's going back to the boyfriend, right? No, no, she's going to a friend's house. Oh, right? that's right. Yes. So she is. She's trying to um, divorce, I suppose that hunger from who she is. And I think that this might be one of those last ditch efforts of I'm normal. I'm going to try to eat a normal food or, or even if not just trying to fit in. Right. And I wonder why is she going to her girlfriend's house instead of heart? She calls heart two times. She doesn't call her girlfriend. Why not go to the boyfriend's house? Who do you really want to rely on here? Yeah. True. Okay. <laughs> Precisely. You, you've got but, the girlfriend. Like I said, she who's... did call him two times with help. Yeah. Help! You got to get me out of here. Well, she couldn't get a hold of the girlfriend because she's got a job and up for a promotion. Hart's got nothing going on. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. He's got Marilyn Chambers as his girlfriend, and he still has some fucking pinups in his fucking garage. Yeah, for real. I mean, would you have left that hospital, Tim? Hell no. The fuck no. I don't leave the hospital until my wife is going out of that hospital. There you go. So yeah, um, yeah, she she gets 
pulls over to the side of the road, vomits. She's not doing too too great off of the trucker sandwich. And, uh, and actually, he, here's he, another cool scene. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Eddie, but uh, when he picks her up, you almost kind of get the feeling that that's it. That's when he's going to get it because he has his arms underneath her armpit right there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Every time. The, there's so many scenes of this. Totally. Yes, totally where you're like, all you. right, this is where it's going to happen because, look, you're, they're, they're hugging. They're doing this. He's picking her up. He's carrying her. And it doesn't happen then. Right. And look at what you've done with her physiology is you've taken a part of her that is normally inconsequential and you've made it into a threat. You know, and not only a threat, but a hidden threat. No one is going to assume your armpit is, is going to kill them. Uh, <laughs> like, I don't know. Have you ever been on the subway when somebody hasn't had deodorant on? No, no subway out here. We have no public transportation in California. No. Trust me. Strap <laughs> hangers who don't put deodorant on. That shit will kill you. Yeah. Yeah. I could, I could see that. <laughs> so, yeah, you get, she gets tossed back into the truck. And... Uh, we, let's not well, miss, we're, we're, let's not skip the scene that's coming. Which no, is. no, 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 no. We're, we're we're going back to the doctor's office where a nightmare has taken place. Yep. Yeah, and uh, Hart arrives there. There's a bunch of cops who've been bitten, um, and they're all being treated. And, and they complain about it, like, "Hey, you know, get, getting bitten that was bad, but these rabies shots, man, they're they're even worse." Yeah, and there's a scene so, where you see one of the cops in the back of a van and. The door just closes. You see some guy with a gigantic fucking needle just going right towards his stomach. Which yeah. does that still is that still how you get rabies shots in the stomach? Not anymore. It, that back then, yes, it was like thirteen shots. Yes, I remember that was always. Classes. I remember hearing that like if you got bit by a rabbit animal, you had to get thirteen shots. It wasn't all like all you had to go back over a couple week period to get it. So I was like, fucking shit, you stay away from rabbit animals. Yeah, no, I think it's like four shots in, into the uh, hip. It's it's no longer that bad. Yeah. I'll take that. Still sucks. Just Fuck don't get bit by an care. animal. It's only four shots in the hip. Uh, and uh, so Hart, he goes in there and uh, it's like, where's where's Rose? Where's Rose? They say, well, I mean, we got a girl down in the basement. I, I, you you want to go try to identify her? Maybe. Maybe she's Rose. Right. And we uh, get... Yeah. Is this really great police work? No. No, not really. Um but I, I feel like the police here have no idea how to handle what's going on. Uh, well, well, here's what it is. is because it's set in the real world. And in the real world, if shit like this was happening, this would be like the fucking last thing that anybody would assume is going on until you have some more fucking evidence, right? So I can yeah. see where the cops and the government and everybody might be a little bit lackadaisical about it. But still, it's just like, hey... My girlfriend is here. Uh, well, there's a dead body downstairs. Do you want to look at that? Yeah. So we we move downstairs, and this uh, this is the scene that they they chose for the cover uh, in most regions of of the video. Right. The VHS cover going back way when is what this is. Mm-hmm. You've got mm-hmm. they and open up. They basically they open up a freezer, and there's. Poor Judy Glassberg. She's a yeah, you know, she's a she's a popsicle basically inside this thing. And I have to say, as far as um, visual like practical effects go, this this is phenomenal. I, I understand why 
they they chose this as an image. I, I don't know what else you would necessarily choose as a cover image. Yeah, um, that's right. Sure, her her part was kind of short in the film, like in, in potentially inconsequential, but uh, is uh, it? It's kind of like well, maybe the most sexual scene in the whole movie. It it certainly shows like Rose's uh, change from prey to predator, I, I suppose. And that's kind of how she gets exposed with that body right yeah. there. Yeah. Because up until this point, nobody was really making any kind of connection that it was her doing it. Yep. And so, yeah, um, Hart says, no, that's that's not her. I don't know who that water rose, but she needs a fucking nose job. Jesus Christ. <laughs> she Jesus. looks just like a father. Oh, God. Yeah. She should uh, go read some Freud. Uh, you see what happens when women try to educate themselves it's not a good thing uh maybe she slipped into that uh freezer no um so we're back at the station now but but also we have the scene with with the last of dr calloid right Oh, uh, oh yes. yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah, because after right. we see the cop getting the shots in the stomach, we pull into a police van, and the police captain is like, uh, "Hey, this is what happened. Your motherfucking doctor bit him." And he's in the van, well, and he comes up and sh- shoves his face right up on the window. Well, yeah, he asks like, "What happened here? What what caused all this?" And he points to the back of the police van and says, "That." And yeah, we we get the the great kind of. Um, like the rabbit animal rushing at the cage uh, right as you walk up. Just like, Tim, uh, how you got afraid of the gorilla girl. I, uh, hey, you watch that video, right? Yeah, Okay, I did. and I'll tell you, when I saw it, it was a hundred times better than what they did on that one. So we'll post that on the uh, on the website on in Discord so everybody can see it. But that shit was freaky. She turned into a gorilla. Yeah, Tim saw a lady at a circus turn into a gorilla. And Atlantic it scared City, him badly. Steel Pier. Uh, <laughs> so that yeah, basically that's uh, that's where we leave the doctor. He's uh, now the slathering kind of uh, maniac. Yeah, it's, we don't uh, see him anymore in the movie, right? So we just assume that he dies. No, no, this is just kind of his end. So, afterwards, after we see this, I guess we get to the scene where we find out where a bit more about Smooth Eddie's fate. You know, <laughs> his, his truck is pulled over by the side of the road, and a Canadian cop pulls over and climbs up into his cab, looks at him passed out there. Hey, buddy. Hey, you okay? Yeah. <laughs> nice. These Canadian cops. cops, man. Hey, look, uh, look. I know you guys drink a lot, you take a lot of pills and shit like that, but just next time, just make sure you pull over a little bit more on the side of the road, what? Yeah, he's like, oh, yeah, no, I'm glad you I'm glad you fell asleep instead of taking the crazy trucker meth pills that they sell, the Ephedra 850 capsules. Yeah. Um, but maybe, yeah, next time pull over further to the side of the road. And what the, the officer is not seeing by climbing up into the window from the driver's side is that on the uh, on his right ear behind it we see the the trickle of blood where he's clearly been fed off of and 
Well, that's why old Smooth Eddie, uh, he's he's not doing too good. He he uh, pops the clutch and spins it out on out and goes, well, goes back to the loading dock, I suppose. Yep. So now where? We go to the, the cop shop and Rose hitches on another ride with a nice mm-hmm. old lady. Yes. Going to Montreal. Is going um, her way. Yep. And she's kind of enthusiastic about yeah, it. Yeah, because she's she like, says, oh, I, thought I never I'd thought never I'd ever home. get home. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Well, she just fed, so she's okay now. But she's not... Go- is she going home? Doesn't she live with her boyfriend versus her girlfriend? Well, the problem is it's a little unclear where exactly Hart lives. Um, the fact that he needs to get a ride all the way out to the Camelford, and that it seems to be a very long ride because we get shot after shot after shot, uh, in this movie of basically Murray and oh, yeah. Hart is just looking at Murray while they're drinking coffee. Like Driving along and yeah. drinking coffee <laughs> suggests that maybe Hart lives in or near Montreal as well. Um, but for whatever reason, it seems that um, Rose wants to get to her friend Mindy, uh, who lives clearly in very urban Montreal. In the most 70s apartment I think I've ever seen in my life. Fair enough. That's pretty wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. But back in Camelford, we're at the police sta- police station, and we meet Canadian health hero Claude Lepoint, um, who nailed is to die. Who's denied, nailed it. Yeah. He is, uh, you know, denied access to the entire station, which is now under quarantine. We had Hart is inside the station trying to phone someone, who turns out to be Mindy. Telling her he's held up there. Uh, yeah, he tells. Doesn't he tell Mindy that if she shows up, you have to keep her there, right? And Until I can get out, because they're they're quarantined for forty eight hours inside the police yes. station. Yeah, and meanwhile, I'm like quarantined for forty eight hours. Man, that seems yes, easy. Fucking asshole, pussies! Come on, I can do that on my head. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but I mean, they they do get a little stir crazy. <laughs> After their their mm-hmm. quarantine, so so we return to the the loading docks though. Yep, the and, truck depot. Uh, the truck depot. Yep, and uh, one of the other truck dive drivers. Uh, he sees mm-hmm. old Smooth Eddie's mm-hmm. truck, and he's like, "Hey, uh, where's Smooth Eddie at? He's usually here, and and he's usually very attractive. Uh, women love him. Men want to be him." Uh, this is, this is the, the, uh, the director's cut, right? Or is this the Eddie cut? Yeah, this is the Axis cut. Uh, so the, the, the boss... Yeah, this the might be your cousin, because you're Eddie the Axe, and this guy's going to be Eddie the Smooth Eddie, something yeah. else. Yeah, he, he's, uh, he's the guy that's hiding uh, behind a bunch of boxes. So we, we uh, follow the trucker over to to go find smooth eddie and boy he's always looking good but not today man he's well he's an infected yeah and now he's eddie the hook yeah he's got a hook he rushes out he bites a guy and then uh whips another dude with a hook and then they kind of dog pile on his ass and we get the feeling like well okay here here's a place where You've got a, a depot of people who are going to be driving across the country, mm-hmm. all now infected. That yep. shit's going to be just spreading out. 
it's literally entered entered into the shipping lines. Uh, <laughs> as bad as you could get. So we cut now to to Mindy in in her house, her seventies apartment. Tim, um, the what's the decor fucking like? Potted plants. Jesus Christ, that shag rug. Yeah, it's uh, it brought me back to my childhood. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, the the large wood panel television, just warm with its uh, radioactive love, which you just go and you would press your face against it at night. Uh, In the winter, it kept your face warm. It did. It it very much did, and you know, occasionally it would reach out. Now, actually, and you know, at the back of the TV you. was the best part for the warmth. You'd, Put your hands on the back of that TV, nice and toasty. Well, yeah, with the nice little antenna that you had to unscrew and then hook the little fork hooks into to hook your old Atari oh, 2600 the, oh, into. Oh, yeah, yeah, have the special adapter. Yeah, you have the RF switch. Yep. Channel yeah. 3 or Channel 4. Did anybody ever use Channel 4? Yeah, there was, uh, a channel, there was a Channel 4 on our local cables. We had a kind of... Primitive local cable system when I was growing up. This is also at the. But is 19th... that the channel, Faustus, that you would go to if you were playing Atari 2600? Because with uh, that, you had to turn it on channel 3 on your TV because that was usually, at least here on the East Coast, that was a channel that nothing has ever, ever been on. Okay. And I think, well, no, now you got cable TV, so it's pro- probably TBS or TNT or something like that. But so that was the thing is you put it on channel 3 because there's nothing on it, it's just snow. Then when you had hooked up to the TV, you would turn it on and the Atari 2600 would come on. But there was always an option on the Switch to have it either go to Channel 3 or Channel 4. And I'm like, who the fuck uses Channel 4? Canadians, probably. Yeah, somebody's going to so, hate me right now. Channel 4, where I grew up, was actually HBO. Uh, yeah, when but you have cable. You this is back it. in the day where there was no cable. This was just over the air. Uh, no, no, yeah, this was over the air, yes, but but there was a pay-per-view channel that once, or you know what, actually, no, this was when my dad purchased illegal cable to scramblers, so never mind. Uh, <laughs> eh, statue of limitations. Yeah, interesting fun fact about that, uh, you know why there's no Channel 1? Why, Eddie? Channel 1 is the noise channel. It's where all of the noise of the bandwidth was uh, originally transmitted on. So the in- initial uh, cable internet modems, all of their data traveled on Channel 1. So if you had the original cable modems before the transfer to digital, that's that was your Channel 1. Did not know that. Yeah, so that's a fun fact. But anyhow, back to the movie. <laughs> um, I was hoping you were going to say it was Civic Welcome TV. Welcome to Old Tech Talk with Eddie the Axe. Oh, Civic. I wish it was Civic TV. <laughs> Again, go listen to Videodrome. Another wonderful, wonderful movie by Cronenberg. Um, Rose, well, she she shows up at a friend's house. But wait, don't forget, don't forget the Claude Rupin television interview. Right. Oh yes, no, that's true. Yeah, 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 he's being he's being interviewed by someone, and he's explaining the disease that they're beginning to get a handle on. There's a brief incubation. We do not think it's zombies. It is a brief incubation of six to eight hours. The victim sweats from, shakes at the mouth, and then becomes violent and wants to bite someone. And you know, his only advice to people who at the moment is, is don't let anybody bite you. Um, 
I can't really do a Quebecois <laughs> accent, but uh, <laughs> better than I could. Uh, and then there's a knock, and here it is. Uh, it appears that in fact Rose has made it all the way to Montreal, and she's visiting her friend Mindy. And and famously, also after after the incubation, after the sweating, the drooling, the violence, and the biting, is coma and death. Yep. Yeah. So no matter what, once you get bit, you're dying. The only thing that you're yes. going to do is just going to infect other people. So that's why that French guy, whoever how you pronounce his name is, is just telling everybody the best thing to do is just fucking shoot these people and put them down. Well, no, that's gonna, that's later. Not, that's that's we're not Dr. there yet. This is yeah. that's 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 later, Doctor. Oh, Gentry. that's the guy from uh, yeah. the uh, WHO, right? Yep. Okay. Yeah. No, this guy is just saying you should stay home and wear a mask. Uh, yeah, that's right, because, again, if everybody had a mask on, it'd be much harder for people to be bitten. Don't let yeah. anybody bite you. Wear a, make them wear a mask. I don't yeah. <laughs> exactly. Put a muzzle on them. Yep. So Rose, like you said, shows up, and uh, we ha- we finally have the, the wonderful reunion of these two. Mm-hmm. But back at the station... Uh, Things aren't going so well. No, they are not. We are down by the prison cells having a little conversation about how bored we are. Um, there's nothing to do, nothing to read. Well, Murray, he's reading, it looks like he's reading some kind of like medical records. And he's like, well, this is really interesting once you really know how to decipher it. And I'm like, you're the fucking finance guy. How the fuck are you reading medical papers and understanding what the hell's going on with skin grafts and all this shit? I thought he was reading, I just thought he was reading business paperwork. Yeah, I'm not sure. They don't really. But he's a businessman, so why would he say this is pretty interesting once you learn how to decipher it? Business paperwork often is kind of interesting once you learn how to decipher it. Uh, Can be, yeah. Uh, So they're down, though, for some reason, reading this near the prison cells. And George shows up. But uh, George, he's, he's a zombie. Even though, well, zombie, well, we'll say he's rabid, quote-unquote. Um, and this is even though he got his rabies shots, we'll learn, and, and they did nothing. So our heroes, quote-unquote, they lock themselves into a, a prison cell uh, to, to escape his advances. Uh, meanwhile, George is then uh, dispatched. So now we know... We've we've lost all semblance of control, right? The law enforcement has no idea what to do. The vaccinations for uh, rabies do nothing. It's pandemonium time, right? We we've gotten rid of any semblance of order. It's going. I mean, you know, but Montreal right now is still calm. And interestingly enough, the curfew or sorry, the quarantine is going to lift on this police station by the next morning. Yeah. Yeah, because aren't they just doing like a lockdown for 48 hours? Yes. So we know, as the viewer, that they're fucked. But uh, (laughs) But they haven't quite figured it out yet. The people at large don't necessarily know. And uh, that's a good thing because Rose, well, it's... uh, I mean, it's Saturday night and she's a woman about town, you know? (sighs) I have so many questions about this scene. So... I, I mentioned earlier the, the putting on of the f- fur. I think there's a symbolism that's implied here. Uh, I will agree with you. I didn't really think about it until you said it, but as soon as you said it, it clicked. Yes. Now she's a predator. Yeah. 
So she gets dressed up. She gets dolled up. She puts on a nice fancy fur and goes for a walk in uh, beautiful, historic downtown Montreal. She ends up at the Eve Theater um, and reaches into her pocket and notices, well, I've, I've got some money. I suppose I could go purchase a ticket and catch a show. Wouldn't... Wouldn't a woman like that get into that fucking porn theater for free? I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's just good the, for business, isn't it? I don't know the rules of, of uh, porn theaters, Tim. Necessarily, it's Canada. Well, it's Canada. That's right. So I am sure that the Canadians are so polite that you could say, "I'm very sorry. I don't have enough loonies to come in and watch this movie and jerk off." <laughs> could you please trust me? I'll uh, gladly pay you Wednesday. For a wank today. <laughs> uh, so she she uh, happily has enough money to get her ticket to uh, go in and, and catch a show. She uh, walks into the cinema and, well, she she goes down. She finds a nice empty seat in a nice empty row and immediately is... Uh, Descended upon. <laughs> Burt Reynolds without his hairpiece on. Yeah, this guy. Not in my top ten of guys. I just don't understand the whole thing of going to a fucking porn theater. I understand that back then you couldn't rent it or anything like that. But for that many people to be there. And with the way that this guy. Especially the way that this guy is dressed up. He looks like he just came from the fucking disco with uh, John Travolta, right? So, what about the um, booths that they used to have in New York? Oh, the uh, the peak booths where you put like 25 cents in, the big sheet comes up, and then you see some chick, and you can tell them what to do, and then the sheet comes down, and you have to keep putting your money in, right? Right, right. I read do you about understand that. why people would go to that? Uh, Yes, because you know what? At the very least, you're there in a room by yourself instead of... What do you do if you're in a porn theater and some dude sits not next to you, but three seats over to your left? Don't you want to be the last one going into the fucking porn theater so you can see where everybody else is sitting so you can kind of sit off by yourself? Because... So... I, I what are you doing up a, a little bit. Um... Specifically regarding Paul Rubens and, and his arrest, it you used to be in certain areas that gay men w would go there to meet other gay men in, in porno theaters. I don't necessarily think that's always the case, clearly. There's probably swinger couples. But I think that the, the pretense of going to the theater was we're, we're going there to find other people who are considered culturally sexually deviant and that might be why this guy uh felt emboldened to to go up and decide to like lay his best line well yeah okay i can see that you're in a porn theater everybody else there's a dude and here comes this beautiful woman dressed in a fur coat so you kind of kind of figure you know maybe you know no means no but she's here she knows what's going on here, so she might be opened up to what uh, I'm going to throw down at her. Yeah, I'll tell you what, Tim. If I go to a cheese sandwich shop, I'm going to assume everybody there either makes or <laughs> likes cheese sandwiches. Uh, 
what you think the employees actually like cheese makes oh, or okay. likes okay. cheese right. sandwiches all right gotcha uh, so yeah, uh, creepy guy. He walks by behind her and uh, touches her, her side of her face in a very creepy move. Super, uh, then, super fucking creepy and incredibly fucking. I don't want to say bold because that might imply that it's a good thing to do, but the fucking emboldened. balls that it takes to say. do something like that to a woman. Emboldened by by bad intentions, mm-hmm. uh, and then he says, "Look, I'm sorry. I, it was an accident. I did not mean to to touch you. Um, I I was taking my coat off." She's like, "Look, I just like coming in here and watching movies." Well, no, she doesn't say anything, and then he keeps pushing it with like, "Excuse me right. for living." Yeah. Excuse me for li- really um, a Travis Bickle, one of our first incels. Uh, is hanging out in here. And she says, yeah, that's why I'm here. I like to watch the movie. I don't want to be bothered is kind of the energy she's giving off a little. But she's also kind of, well, maybe I can eat this guy. And he says, look, uh, if you don't want a guy to bother you, maybe I'll just come and sit next to you. Yeah, that way everybody everybody will think we're together and they won't bother you because I'll be the one bothering you. He's playing three-dimensional chess, I suppose. He thinks he is. That's what it is. He thinks he's, like, really being slick. And and it works, though, because she she agrees to it. And for a moment, he hesitates because he's like, wait, that worked? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right, I guess. uh, Yeah, because he says, uh, I'll I'll sit next to you so no other other guys bother you. But I just need a couple of handful, handful of popcorn. That's it. Yeah, so he sidles up next to her and grabs a few pieces of popcorn. But then he's like, ah, never mind this. He puts it back into the container, puts his arm around her. And his hand starts wandering a little bit. Um, he's kind of the aggressor here, here with this. And... Uh, well, we, we see she's getting a little turned on in the armpit. <laughs> her armpits are sweating. Yeah, yeah. We see her little uh, red thing sticks out and then the barb from it. And what's funny is it, it, it actually reminds me of um, every time she pulls out the IV, you see the needle in the IV. And for some reason, just the barb uh, of her uh, armpit phallic uh, proboscis reminds me of the of the uh, IV. Right? Well, the IV that's in her in the hospital is to give her nourishment and to keep her healthy, right? And right, this right. is what she's using that for, to give her nourishment and keep her healthy. Right. So, we cut to her leaving the theater, cut back to him. He's been taken out. Yeah, yeah he got it he's, in the hand. Um, exsanguinated through the hand. Um, a real stigmata scenario for our well. Porto what's funny is Jesus. that uh, no matter what, he was going to end up with a hand job at the end of that night. I no, guess not that well, funny. Yeah, okay. No, Tim. Yeah, they kind of fall back. <laughs> take, take, take another drink here. Huh? Okay. <laughs> so now we uh, we cut back to Mindy's, and 
Rose is not doing well. She's she's writhing and sweating on the floor. Yeah, why good, is goodbye there, Faustus? You okay? No? Yeah, sorry. He took too much no, of a it's, snort. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, well, it was a um, <laughs> there, there's there's some puns that you just have to swallow, so to speak. And then no whiskey down. is yeah. a good enough chaser for that. Yep. So, <laughs> uh, see, so Rose isn't doing so well. She's writhing on the floor again, uh, provocatively in in a sheer kind of white top. So yeah, you can see her nipples, I guess. Why is she sick? She drank she, human blood. She didn't yeah. eat food. She didn't eat. She, she she didn't drink blood from a different animal. She got it from the guy in the porn theater. So why is she sick? Well, you wonder if the disease state of the person that she fed off of might have an effect on her. Oh, so creepy right. guy is not in good shape himself, eh? Oh. I, I wonder that. That's a hypothesis I have. Maybe I've this guy's got fucking like 18 different VD things going on at the same time? Yeah, because specifically later when she talks about the last person she feeds off of, she points out he's a good and clean person. Um, mm. So, maybe. And her roommate. Yeah. So... She's writhing on the floor and sweating, and uh, Mindy's knocking on the door. And, Tim, we've all been here. We've been at the party. We drank too much. We're throwing mm-hmm. up in the fucking toilet. You're lucky if and, you make uh, it to the toilet. <laughs> I remember one time I fucking, this fucking parted the dance floor like the Red Sea with my projectile vomiting. Oof. Oof. It's incredible how when you're trying to get to the bathroom and you're like, excuse me, excuse me, nobody listens. But as soon as you make that... Everybody just get the fuck out of the way. Yeah, that's the that's uh, the benefits of body horror, Tim. <laughs> Try that on the New York City subway. If you can't find a seat, just walk up to somebody and go, that's it. That, that sounds effective to me. And in, in speaking of the subway, man. Yep. My, my word. So, so yeah, she, she, yeah, she's uh, an actress, Mindy, Mindy right? No, she's a computer programmer, right? Yeah. Look at, look at the she's... volume she's holding it in her hand. It kind of looked and... like a script almost. Well, I guess computer well, code it... and a script could look uh, similar. It looked like it looked like a, I think it said something like computer coding on it, as she's like trying yeah. to talk to uh, Rose in the bathroom, and eventually she heads out. Yeah, so she's like, she's, I'm going for a she's... job interview. Aren't you going to wish me luck? Yep. And Rose is writhing and making all yeah. these sounds. She's like, I'm brushing my teeth. Good luck. And as soon as Mindy hears what she wants to hear, that's it. She's happy to go. Yeah. All right. She's good enough. She she heard that I wanted good luck. Now I'm going to leave. And uh, I don't think she's going to have great luck. But we we cut to the subway. And I've never been on a subway. but Really? Wow, Eddie. You yeah, no, yourself no, no, kind of no, lucky, I'm... but also not. It's an experience. Washington State, then California, then that's Florida. That's subway. Florida has no a subway system? There. No, no, no. Never been there. So never been to any subway. But Los okay. Angeles has a subway system. Yeah, but... Never been there, though. Oh. Um, Even I've been I'm... on the Los Angeles subway. What the fuck You know what? I'll have to... Where do you think they filmed Midnight Meat Train? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I know. I'll really? I thought that was that Canada. Out. I think the Midnight Meat Train was filmed... The, the subway scenes are in Los Angeles. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll have to check that out when the world stopped ending. Um. (laughs) There's a a lot of stuff building up on that list, believe me. Yeah. Unfortunately, because of my work, I can't travel uh, further than 75 miles from where I sit. 
Oh. So, yeah. Okay. 76 um, miles is where you get sick. Yeah, it's if I do, I have to quarantine for 14 days, and it's a whole nightmare. Can you work from it, home? Um, hmm. no. Okay. Uh, the because the, a lot of the systems that I work on are are considered classified. Uh, that that I can't. I'm not Hillary Clinton. I can't take that home. <laughs> uh, okay. So if you're uh, in quarantine, do you get paid or not? Yeah, I, I would. So just it, go 77 fucking miles away every couple of weeks. <laughs> no, the problem is that knowing Lee and willfully doing that threat uh, jeopardizes my security clearance. Mm, because, okay, and wow. Yeah. Uh, if anybody's listening, I did not suggest that at all. No, it's, it's not a big deal. It, we don't, don't do no criminal solicitation on this show. No way. No, 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 no. No, it's, this is all purely just bureaucratic. Yeah. So we're down in the subway, and uh, it's it's such a great scene because Mindy walks into the subway car, and even though at first it starts out just kind of panning around and looking at the the people around, you, the viewer, already have a sense of dread built into you. We don't need the music to build that sense of dread. We don't need to, to pan to anybody specifically, but we end up doing that. And right. it's really, again, like how you said, how he, what he's done, what, 1977, and it's true today, is riding the New York City subway, The more and more, the last couple of weeks, there's been more people who haven't had masks on, or have the fucking nose hanging out of their fucking mask, mm. or they, uh, one guy had a fucking lollipop in his mouth, so that's why he doesn't need to wear a fucking mask while he's on the subway. <laughs> Drinking coffee, you don't need to have a fucking mask. People taking their mask off to fucking talk on the phone. And it's one of those things where she sees this woman, and you could tell by looking, if you looked at that fucking woman, you could tell, this woman's fucked up. And by this point, there's already been newscasts that she's heard talking about this fucking rabies-like yeah. disease going around. But again, either she's too polite or she doesn't want to be the first one to stand up and stick her head up above the crowd and say something. And she just stands there when she sees what this woman's fucking doing. Yeah, it's uh, it's very much a people are always trying to keep the illusion of normalcy going, right? Well, yeah, because wasn't there some show where they had a thing where they set it up in a restaurant and like there was a bunch of actors and like there were a couple of people who weren't in on it and uh, they started making it look like there was a fire and there's all this smoke billowing out and none of the other people who were actors were reacting at all and the people who were really you know who didn't know what was going on were like looking at everybody else nobody else is doing anything and they didn't fucking do anything they stayed there to pay their check before they left yeah yeah i mean we we are so divorced from any sort of a sense of uh, uh panic that that we just well i guess that's somebody else's problem but or this just be- not trusting your instincts yeah but this quickly becomes everybody else's problem as she just starts charging people and biting them. Bites a guy's ear. Yeah, she bites yeah. the Dunkin' Donuts guy ear. She uh, she pulls <clears throat> the uh, uh, Mike Tyson and uh, bites old Holyfield. And the people begin flooding out of the subway. It, that's a great fucking scene because you could see that they just really went whole hog on getting out of that fucking uh, train car. 
because the main actress, Mindy, the one that was supposed to be for, there's like three different parts when that door opens up that you can see her and she's trying to go this way and everybody's shoving her the other way and then she's trying to go that way and everybody's shoving her the other way. It's really a good scene the way that everybody comes charging out of that fucking door when it opens up. Oh yeah, it's wonderfully shot too. And this is the first time we actually have a scale of a large like mass of people uh, in the in the movie, right? Up until now, it's actually been kind of smaller. See, even even in the porno theater, there's maybe sixteen people. Well, again, going know? back to what's going on now with Corona, is once it happens in the subways in mass transit, that's it. Yeah. That's when the shit hits the fan. Because and, everything here in New York was going okay until they're like, all right, you know, we're shutting the schools down and the fucking subways are going to be running at fifty percent. And one of the criticisms that I hear uh, of this movie is you get kind of into this uh, uh, repetition of Rose meeting somebody, feeding off of them, and then leaving over and over and over again, similar to the you see the infected, the infected bites somebody, and we cut away from it over and over and over again. And I think so what? what I think what Cronenberg is setting up now is we're now to the point where uh, you, Tim, and I, we and Faust is. Uh, potentially we've lost track of who all has been bitten now it's yep. now out of our hands mm. right there's no yeah there's no going back to uh, patient zero and trying to figure out what happened from there because it's already spread out to a hundred thousand people right it's like an unspoken thing between the the filmmaker and us now They're like okay well we're we're done it's yep. it's now a war zone yeah it's too late to uh, stop it what's <clears throat> And this, I believe, Faustus, is when we cut to the the press conference with the doctor. One more scene. His... Oh, where okay. You have Lapointe and some other civil servant, probably somebody who works for the. Oh, mayor. in the car, right? The, uh, like yes. the mayor's assistant, I think, right? But they're they're driving along in their Ford LTD. <laughs> oh no, no, hold on, because uh, I have written down. How does a fucking station wagon have a limousine driver who's in a fucking bow tie with a cap on? Well, you know, Money. municipal budgets, they're kind of limited at this time. So. It's a station wagon. If you, you have can, a driver, can, he's not wearing you, a fucking bow tie and a you, fucking driver's cap. You can either have a driver or you can have a nice car, but you can't have both. So I guess they took the former. <laughs> All right. Um, so they're driving along. La Planta is going on about, about <clears throat> you know, we have to um, get the mayor to take this more seriously and so forth. And they get stopped in front of a construction site. They can't go through, so they ask the driver to roll down his window and talk to the people. Bad mistake, because they come; these <coughs> workers come up with a drill, and they drill through the door, drag the poor driver out, and attack him. So these civil servants like hop into the front of the car and drive themselves off. But and again, they... here we have an example of where even though they are been they've been infected. They still have some control over what they're doing and some mental capability to know yeah. how to use a drill, how to do an operation, how to drive a truck. How to, how to attack civil servants. Well, yeah. that's always a good thing to know. Yeah. So now we get to the World Health Organization guy, the bigwig Dr. Gentry, who's flying in from Europe or wherever. And he says, it's time for martial law. You know, we have a vaccine, but shooting down the victims is as good a way of handling them as we've got. If we lock them up, they go into a coma and I die. We have a vaccine. And then the last of the interview, you know, is seen in, at our TV in, a, in the cop shop back in Camelford. The cops are watching this. 
they're explaining that vaccine cards are available and everyone has to carry one. Yeah, the uh, well, they the government got that shit in the gear pretty fast, didn't they? Yep, they did. Now that we get to now we get to my, get close to one of my favorite scenes in the movie, uh, Hart and Cipher. This isn't isn't this Hart and Cipher get out and depart in their car to drive to the Montreal, and they just get basically best wishes from like the cop who's running the station. They say, "Well, keep your windows rolled up and don't stop for any crazies." Keep the doors locked and the windows rolled up. Yep. Uh, yeah, because at this point, didn't they get the vaccination? He's like, it'll protect you from the virus, but it won't protect you from the crazies. Yeah. Yes. So Rose then goes out to a mall, which, you know, in spite of the fact that we're now in pandemic mode. Hey, you got to keep the economy out. going, Faustus. Yep, yep, you yep. Know, can't it's shut being, it down. It's being patrolled by soldiers and a bunch of heavily armed cops, but it's still Christmas and we still have mall Santa. Um, and wow! Well, oh, by Santa's the way, Mrs. Helper. Claus. Yeah. yeah, holy shit! You know what? I'm going there just to hang out because every time she takes a picture of Santa sitting on a kid with a kid, holy shit! Everybody's getting a fucking upskirt shot on her. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, very very short uh, Santa's elf costume there. Um, <laughs> Poor Santa. Anyway, Rose sits down, and then some young man sits down beside her. And... Oh, you mean dude in boots? <laughs> oh, God, those boots. And his boots are alone. I'm like, the balls that it takes to put those fucking boots on and to tuck I'm... your fucking pants into them. Uh, that's and then notes. to walk up to Marilyn Chambers and try to hit on her, and you don't even have a fucking lighter to top it that's... off. Right. Look, man, uh, that's shoot in my that's shoot. In... Matt, those are in my notes, too. Those, his boots are preposterous. Yep, that's uh, what I have. Dude in boots. That's all I need to know about this scene. He tries to get her to offer her a cigarette, but doesn't have a light. <laughs> yeah. So he says, so oh, I'm going to go over there and get the light from that guy, okay? And then he gets over to that guy, and he turn, the guy turns out to be one of the cra- rabid crazies, and he attacks him. And she looks genuinely shocked and surprised. Like, this is the first time that she's seen yep. what what she's doing, what the uh, the repercussions are. So one of the young cops runs up. He's carrying a submachine gun. <laughs> yeah, this fucking gun. <laughs> oh, my God. And he says, stop, or I'll shoot. And then he shoots. And he shoots down the crazy, but he also shoots Santa Claus. And he almost gets Mrs. Claus and some fucking kid in the crossfire, too. Yeah, like, uh, well, actually, like, you know, the, you know, Santa's elf there is really heroic. She grabs the kid and runs off getting her out of the line of fire just before he opens fire. So good for her. Uh, but Santa Claus is not she so get, lucky. She needs a bigger uh, pay raise. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Santa Claus is not so lucky, and he gets gunned down. Uh, good work, Canadian police. Um, and Cronenberg... <laughs> hey, look. He can move funniest... fast enough to cover the whole world in one night. He should be able to get away from fucking a couple of bullets, right? Yeah, you'd think so, but... You know, Santa old... time! Old and slow, really. But he's lost a step. <laughs> he has the thing that I read, the funniest thing here. This is probably the funniest moment in the entire Cronenberg commentary track. Is he says shooting Santa Claus is very satisfying to those of us who don't like Christmas. <laughs> yeah, oh, I can imagine. <laughs> it was really oh, ca- it was really cathartic for everyone on the crew to have to shoot that scene. Uh, he said it was also a lot of fun to play around with a submachine gun. <laughs> Oh, I imagine it was. The only thing that was crazy was if you look um, in in the background, you can actually see <clears throat> Tim Allen shows up, and he's walking over to Santa's dead body. Uh-huh. 
What? Looking for cocaine? Do you need some more uh, rye there? This, this was a Santa Claus joke. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we, we, uh, we've killed Santa now. We've basically uh, uh, stomped our foot on everything that is sacred. Uh, and, well, Rose, she goes back over to Mindy's. Yep. And Mindy, she shows up uh, back at back at her home, and Rose is, well, she's not doing well. She's lying in bed. She she did not get her meal that that she went out for. She uh, couldn't stop over at Sparrows and and get a slice or anything. Uh, best best slice in town, by the way, Sparrows. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, so she's yeah. Try that pasta. And, it's incredible. It's it's there. Uh, so Mindy uh, says, "Look, I uh, you need to you need to chill here and 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 relax." And Rose is like, "No, nah, I gotta like I gotta go out. I gotta go. I gotta go do some stuff." Um, but no, Mindy, she she insists you, you've got to stay here, and you get the feeling. It's like this is the last barrier that Rose does not want to break, right? Mm-hmm. Is she's seen sort of the what maybe she does does to to people. It has an effect and, that she's not right. just feeding off of people and they're just walking away from her out of her sight. So whatever she's doing, she doesn't really see the effects of because she feeds from these people. And either they pass out or they wander away, and then later on something happens to them. So as far as she knows, she's just taking some blood off of people, and that's it. They just go to sleep, and they wake up the next day, and they're a little bit groggy. But now after the mall, she knows. She needs to feed, but she does not want to feed off of Mindy. This is the last straw for her. I'm not going to feed off of somebody I know. I'm not going to feed off of a friend, right? But Mindy's then, kind then, of throwing herself at her, isn't she? She kind of is. Yeah, she says, "Look, whatever you gotta. Uh, if you can't depend on anybody, depend on me, right? Uh, you can always turn to me for for whatever you need." Uh, and that's not necessarily true. Well, we cut back to our our hero, uh, Hart and Murray. He's still getting and- a ride. Yeah, still getting a ride, still still driving in, and and the, I think it's right as they get out on the outskirts of town, we see some overturned cars, right, and uh, we see lines of people, and the soldiers uh, who are here are separating them. They're saying, "Okay, let's see your ID. You've been vaccinated. You you have not been vaccinated. You separate." And from again, the in a very line. very polite way, on the army side, and the one woman who tries to get in and wasn't vaccinated, he's like, "Excuse me, ma'am, could you please step over to this side of the line? You're not vaccinated." Yep. Okay. Canadian martial law, very polite. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so hard. He he uh, he pulls up to. The, this stop, and we see a bunch of trash trucks. Yeah, like garbage you, trucks with uh, army guys. Are they sitting on top of the trucks, or is well, it like a little fucking a, like dugout for them to be in? There seems to be like like soldiers sitting on top of this huge parade of garbage trucks, 
but also like guys in white biohazard suits hanging on to the yes. the sideboards where you normally expect to see a garbage man. Yep. Shit's getting real. Um, and Cypher decides it's a, maybe it's a good idea we turn around and go to my place. Yeah. He says, look, uh, why don't we go back Hold to on. my I home? I a question. Does Murray yeah. have a brother named Lewis? Uh, not in this movie. Lewis, okay. but, um, Lewis Cypher? Yeah. Lewis Cypher. Lewis Cypher? Yeah. I oh, think he on. might. Uh, he's come a on. devil of a man, that Lou Cypher. <laughs> Angel heart choke. Yeah. Deep cut. Deep uh... cut. Disturbing movie, but uh, you, maybe it should be done sometime. <laughs> I know. By the way, this is this is actually a, a quasi historical scene because Montreal was actually under martial yes. law in October 1970. Um, due to, really? due to something, yes, there was something called the October Crisis. Canadian separatists in something called the Front de Libération de Québec, kidnapped uh, the deputy premier of the province, Pierre Laporte, and also a British diplomat named James Cross. Uh, and so Pierre Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, invoked a statute called the, um, what is it called, the, the Wartime Measures Act, the War Measures Act, effectively putting the entire province under martial law. Um, the FLQ had been kind of a terrorist problem in Quebec, for the previous seven years. They basically had conducted a bombing campaign, setting off 950 or so bombs. Holy shit! Mostly directed at, like, English-language sort of sites or targets in Quebec or federal government targets, like mailboxes and so on. And they ended up murdering um, Pierre Laporte. Uh, James Cross they let go after negotiations. But during this time, the province was under martial law, uh, and the Canadian police arrested about 650 people, essentially on suspicion of you know, associations with Quebecois separatists. Uh, Montreal was patrolled by uh, Canadian army troops, uh, and it took a while to, to simmer down. Uh, the FLQ lost a lot of sympathy as a result, uh, and Quebecois nationalism turned. Well, out yeah, there's it. always that tipping point where yeah. you're, you know, the power yeah. to the people, and then you go too far, and then that's it. You get the people to, to turn on you. Yeah, people didn't like this, and so Quebecois nationalism went on, but it turned toward electoral politics and away from terrorism. So when when Cronenberg is filming this, he's actually like drawing on memories of things that for Canadians would have been in the relatively recent past, uh, and it must have been kind of an unusual experience if you're a Canadian viewer of this film to see this brought back to you. Was there something where they like when they had the martial law, they were using garbage trucks, like maybe not you know not to pick up bodies, but maybe like to block off streets and like well, to cert- I, shut down I, areas? I, I don't know, but they might very well have done so. Um, because it I, seems kind of like an odd choice to have especially that many of them. And you really, when you think about it, in any other movie, wouldn't they just have like the army just rolling in and the fucking jeeps and tanks to kill everybody? Well, yeah, but this is also Canada for one, and for two, he didn't have a very large budget, right? So, what's the largest uh, uh, chunk of metal that you can roll out on a convoy and, and, and intimidate? Yeah, uh, it, it garbage truck kind of worked. Yeah, yeah. That's true. What, what's interesting is in an interview with Cronenberg, uh, they were talking to him about this uh, possibly being. <clears throat> A, uh, a cautionary tale or, or the subtext being STDs. And he said, uh, specifically what you were talking about, Faustus, that that, that was actually the subtext, mm-hmm. um, was was this coup, uh, thwarted 
coup in Canada, but he says, but um, any any piece of artwork actually should be left more to the interpretation of the viewer. So if in in history, the subtext of it is 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 more relevant toward uh, the AIDS crisis or the STD crisis to you, the viewer, then that's what it is mm-hmm. for you, right? That, that's certainly fine. I guess I'm sort of interested in seeing how where the inspiration came from and sort of get a sense of the original reception. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Because yes. that's something that you just, I've never heard that on the news. I've never heard that talked about in America. Well, Even know, back this, in the this... 80, in 1980, I wasn't exactly old, but I was, I was aware of politics and I think I would remember a story about them kidnapping a fucking high-level fucking politician well, in Canada this, this and was 900 in, this bombs. Was 1970 so this took place. Oh, oh okay. So you, so no, you was probably, two years you, old. So you probably wouldn't remember it. No. Yeah, it was two years um, old. I was still sucking um, the tit. But it is for Americans. It also affects the reception in an odd way because if you're an American, you tend to think of Canada as this sedate, peaceful, kind of boring oh, yeah, place. Yeah. Uh, but that's just not really true. Uh, and it wasn't true for Cronenberg. Um, no. Well, because he, well, he's Canadian, right? Right. So he's lived there, so he knows it, and we only know Canadian through our fucking. Every once in a while, we'll take some comedian of theirs and put them on Saturday Night Live. Right. Yeah. Not to mention, I mean, he's he's violent. He killed Santa. Like God. Yeah. It took a Crazy Canadian guy. to do it. So Hart, yeah, pulls up, sees the trash trucks going, and like as you said, Murray says, "Look, let's let's go back to my home and make sure everything is okay. Uh, once we get there, I'll give you the the keys, and you can go and you can go find uh, Rose and bring so her back we... to uh, our place." Right? Yeah, he he suggests bring her back to where to, to our place because it's probably safer here. So. Uh, we pull a U-turn and go back to Murray's house. And this is kind of a rough one. Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> he goes home and uh, he's he's comfortable, right? He's finally home. He's in the place that is safe for him. It's well lit. Uh, everything looks inviting. And he takes his coat off and, uh, oh, Cecilia, uh, I'm home, honey. Uh, let's... Uh, you know, put the roast on, warm up some tea or, or whatever. Uh, Cecilia, and he's looking through his house. He walks upstairs. He, you can see the nursery behind him that's well lit with the mobile hanging. And Cecilia, he... There's no baby still, inside the crib. No response, no baby in the crib. Well, maybe the, the wife's got the baby, who knows. Looks through all the rooms and there's no Cecilia to be found. Uh, he turns back to the nursery, though, because he sees the mobile jostle and is moving a bit. He gets in there, and he doesn't see anything, turns, and on the carpet in front of the uh, changing mm-hmm. table area, he finds a spot of blood. Hold on, Eddie. What color is this carpet? Isn't it, like, blood red? It's, I, it's, I that. How the fuck can he see blood on that color carpet? It's not like it's white carpet. Yeah, or blue I suppose and you, you can see, see anything. that it's it red was shag like matted. Carpet. Right, but it's shag. It's high pile shag, so you could probably see that it's matted down. He's like, wait a minute. For some reason, it looks like my wife didn't comb this section of the shag <laughs> carpet today. <laughs> uh, he reaches down, he touches it, he feels the the blood. You're not going to use it. a brush. You're going to use a comb. 
Yep, or a pick. And uh, he says, oh, Lord, you know, this this probably isn't good. And then he opens up a, uh, well, a little, like, chest-looking compartment. It's, it's like a baby bath. Yes. Is yeah, it? Because I, I, I actually pause it, and they do it so quickly. It, it was hard to pause it on the exact thing. It's like, how is that a baby bath that opens up like that, like a fucking chest? Um, yeah, I don't know, but, but it is, and it's, uh, full of blood with the implication being, well, uh, your baby's dead, so that's good. He is distraught, obviously, he, he turns and, well, he, uh, here's something in the closet. Yes, his 52-year-old well, wife. How, how old is she really? Because we only see her when she's infected. That's true. E, okay, even if she's having a bad day, and then on top of that, she's got infected, she still has to be at least 45 years old. Hmm. So this is a very, what is that, uh, what is that, late light baby, or the, uh, December baby, whatever the fuck they call it, but the math doesn't add up on this baby. Yeah, it's it's maybe a little bit rough. Uh, doesn't matter though because she she just dives on him and, and takes his ass out, so that's good. And the Murray. Uh, yeah, and we cut back to old uh, Mindy taking care of Rose. She she puts a nice little towel on her head on Rose's head. A very striking juxtaposition between the violence of the previous scene and the tender level of care that we see here yeah yeah the 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 fratricide right the the killing of one's child and then your your husband effectively um you know all the scenes with mindy is very gentle very caring very giving it's it's almost like you expect them to have uh the fucking last leaf outside their window waiting for it to fall off yeah and Rose though is like oh, I'm probably okay. You, you could, you could leave me alone. You should probably go deal with your own thing. And uh, she she gets up from the the bed and, and starts getting dressed. She starts putting on her. Well, doesn't her also isn't this the point where Rose is hearing the news reports where they're yeah, talking we... about how they've been able to track it back to the like almost like a patient zero or like where the epicenter started from. And that there's a typhoid Mary walking around out there. Yeah, they specifically use the term typhoid Mary, too. And they say it's from the keloid clinic. It is a spreader who is not themselves um, infected with it, right? So, and that that's going to be important uh, to the ending. Uh, because they, we've, we've established that they know there's Mary a difference between yeah. the spreader and the infected. Right. So Hart's driving across town, and he's trying, trying to uh, rush to his rose. And right about now, we get a zombie jumping up. Well, zombie, a rabid, jumping up onto his car window. Oh, I like and yeah, I like this scene. <laughs> this Ugh. this is one of those gallows humor, dark <coughs> comedy scenes. Uh, oh, it's phenomenal. Well, first of all, doesn't that fucking guy on the roof with the sniper rifle take a chance of fucking shooting the guy in the car? 
more than he maybe he's going to hit the fucking zombie-like thing, whatever the hell it is? I don't know. It's not a very long shot. It looks like it's about 30 yards. Uh, still, I don't that's know. A, that, that's, that's, an e- that's an easy shot for a trade rifleman. Right. Yeah, shot. it shouldn't be too bad. Yeah, but uh, this, it's... wait, hold on. These are Canadian cops. Are these, do they have like, uh, is this the, maybe like the National Guard? No, these are the Mounties. These are well, that guy's a, that guy's shooters. a soldier. He's in he's in um, yeah he's an olive drab, which suggests he's an army man. Okay. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, he, he pops old Mister Zombie Boy in, in the dome piece and kills him dead on the window of the guy's car. After you know we get the blood and the uh, the saliva splattered on on the windshield. And I love this that they they remove the body from the the car, and a guy just kind of walks over, very nonchalant. Yeah, he's the window washer. He's like, you know what? Hey, squeegee guy, I'm not fucking tipping you. Get the hell out of here. Two guys in hazmat suits that squeak, they just like spray off the window. (laughs) And the thing that really gets me about the scene is then they just sort of wave him through. Yeah, like, like, hey, go ahead, don't worry. It's like. It's yeah. like he's in a car wash or something. And this is what you didn't did see anything at all. Keep going, citizen. Oh, precisely. The guy on the passenger side walks up and goes, and then waves him forward on wow. the side of the nice car. sound effect. How'd you do that? Uh, magic. That's that's uh, the magic uh, of editing. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, it's so it's such gallows. Oh God, I love it so much. It's it's such a great scene. And so he's like, I, fuck it, I guess. And, and he drives off, and as he drives off, you get this first-person perspective uh, from him looking through this window. Oh. He's put the wipers on, smeared the blood completely across it. You can barely, and, and as it progressively, as he's driving, you can see less and less uh, out of it. Yeah, he's it's, really uh, smearing it more than he's cleaning it. It's a phenomenal shot. Um, goddamn Cronenberg! Even even back in, then, with no money. Rabid. The the endless black humor here is really something to behold. Um, yeah, all the way up until the end too. So. so Rose, she she puts on her hunting furs and tries to sneak out, but Mindy stops her for the yep. for the last time. There's a comment here that actually on the on the Blu-ray, there's an interview with Susan Roman, who's the actress who plays Mindy or played Mindy. Mm-hmm. And she said, for this particular scene where Rose got out of bed, they had to like do, they had to have her in for an extended lighting tech check because it's basically her body. They have to light it correctly for the scene to work. Mm-hmm. She said, every man associated with this production found a reason why they had to be on on the set that day. Every you know, <laughs> every grip, every every carpenter, even the even the craft services guy, all had some reason why they had to be there. Yeah, it, it's beautifully shot. I yep. mean, I, I'll I'll give them that. Their whatever their inspiration truly might have been, it it led to a a, a well done final product. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, Mindy uh, stops her, and this this is when we get finally heart. Shows up at the building, but we don't don't leave out the dialogue that takes place between Mindy and Rose. Oh, because, if you have it, be, please, because it is chilling. All right, it is. It says, yes. says Min, you know, Rose looks at Mindy and says, "I don't want it to be you." And her response is, "Of course, it should be me. It's I'm your best friend." Mm-hmm. Who else is it going to be if it's not me? Right. 
and the audience, of course, is understands that the the, un, the double meanings and with that are buried within these phrases, even if many doesn't, it is deeply shocking. Um, and what comes next when Hart shows up shows us why it's deeply shocking. And like, I think this might be one of the scenes you were referring to earlier, Tim. It's one of the extended feeds, right? Yeah. Um, this one she's really going to town on. I guess if she's going to do it to her friend, she's going to do it right. Well, there's a quickie and then there's love, right? Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, Hart, he shows up just in time to see Rose feeding. And it's such a such a great scene, right? Because we, we walk through the door with him and we see her hunched over feeding like the, the feral kind of bestial Nosferatu Yeah, but when vampire. she looks up, she kind of looks like she's guilty and like she got caught. Like she knows she got caught doing something that she's not supposed to. Well, right. She she covers her face, which is interesting because she's not feeding with her face, but she's shamed. So so she covers her face but with her arm. Um, and he's like, what the fuck are you doing here? Uh <laughs> You know, there's this whole shit going on right now, and it's your fault. Yeah, you're the plague. You. You've killed thousands of people. Right. And she's like, look, motherfucker, this is actually your fault. Uh, yes, it is, isn't it? He's the one driving the motorcycle. So when push comes to shove, it was his fault. I mean, it's the chicken and the egg. It's, it's also the doctor's fault, right? But he's not around to argue. Yeah, but the doctor doesn't get involved unless there's an accident. Yeah, yeah, true. Uh, so this whole argument takes place, and and this is probably the one scene where Hart uh, emotes. Uh, yes, he finally has some kind of fucking feelings. And I wonder because Cronenberg is—I mean, he did not have a lot of money here, and this was his sophomore kind of effort as far as a large commercial release. I wonder if the casting of Hart and and the playing him as a very kind of silent, dull character most of the time. Oh, yeah. Contrasting it to how he acts now makes it feel more genuine. You know what? Let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say if that's what he was going for. Because throughout the whole movie, this guy is like a fucking piece of wet cardboard. Yeah. And you don't understand. Like one of the things I kept wondering is why is Marilyn Chambers with this guy? Oh yeah, I mean, like, yeah, there are several other people. Like the guy in the mall actually had more chemistry with her. And those than, boots. That's you know, that's a fucking yeah. tough hurdle to beat. You know, putting those that's, boots on and being fucking true. hard, and you still beat hard. That's really. Uh, we have to fucking put it on the uh, the Twitter or whatever. Discord. We have to put a picture. I mean, of those are boots. some shoes to fill. You're you're correct, Tim. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we we they have their their argument. They they fight it out in into the hall, and then in into the stairway where Rose uh, tries to run away, but gets caught up kind of in the scuffle and throws shoves. Heart down the stairs. Does he shove him? I think he kind of falls. What do you think? You Faustus, does he fall or does she shove him? I saw it as more as a fall. 
Um, he ends up on his back at sort of like the bottom of one flight, and he's unconscious. Yeah, that's true. It might not have been intentional. Uh, yeah, he's he is knocked out, and and she, so she goes down first, and she she checks his uh, carotid artery to make sure he's still pumping blood. Oh, you can see he's still breathing. So. Yeah. 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 Um, and you wonder for a minute is she going to feed on him? What what's going to well, happen? Isn't that going to be like the ultimate taboo? That she's already yeah. all right, she's eaten on a friend, but now this is the guy that she supposedly loves and loves her. Yeah. See so, yeah. And she doesn't though. She uh kisses him and leaves. So she she goes upstairs and uh pounds on the elevator buttons for a while. Because uh yeah, famously the, the, the more you hit the button, the more quickly it, it actually comes up faster. Uh, <laughs> I get it. I get it. it. It's uh it feels good. It's a stress thing, right? It's yeah, like it's she's... like the reason why that people always used to hate waiting for elevators and then somebody figured out if we put mirrors Next to the elevated doors, people won't mind because they'll spend that time looking at themselves and checking themselves out, and time will go by faster. Oh my God, is that true? Yeah, I think I, I'm pretty sure ninety nine percent invisible. The podcast, that's where I heard it. I heard it somewhere. I can't be making it up. Wow, I didn't make up Gorilla Girl, so trust me on the elevators <laughs> and the mirrors. Yeah, I mean that just speaks to our rampant narcissism. I I love it. Um, it. It makes when I read it or heard it, I was like, that makes perfect sense. And I realized I went home that day and like either reading or hearing, I was like, you know what, motherfucker, there are mirrors in front of the fucking elevator, and yeah, <laughs> I'm looking at myself in the mirror before I'm wow. fucking waiting for the elevator to come. Huh. So yeah, she she uh, she gets in the elevator. She goes down to the lobby. And, well, she meets a, another guy who's just there to get the mail. Yep. <laughs> and you know just... what? Fucking Canadian post office. What the fuck? When I move, I just fill out a postcard, have to wait for an email to come back, send them a, back an email to confirm it, and that's it. All my mail has been forwarded. Well, 1977, no email. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. true. All right. Yep. Pleasant-looking young man, played by Alan Moyle. Uh just there picking up his mail. What's his What's his name? Alan Moyle is the name of the actor. Moyle. Who, yeah. Moyle. Yeah. Like the guy who does the circumcision. Moyle. No, it's spelled M O Y L E. Okay. Yeah. And so she uh, kind of sits next to him. Hey, I'm here. I was trying to see my friend. My friend's gone though, and we get the idea. All right, she's. Uh -huh. She's out on the hunt again. Yeah, he's like, haven't I seen you around this building before? Yeah. Uh, then the next thing we we see is Hart wakes up. And we hear a phone ringing. He ru rushes. He stumbles up the stairs. It's he, kind, of, kind of the central form of suspense in Hart's life. Will mm -hmm. he get to the phone in time or not? Sometimes he yeah, does. Yeah, that's Some, right. Holy sometimes shit. Sometimes he doesn't. <laughs> but this time he does get to the phone in time. He answers it, and it's Rose. And she says, look, I've taken to heart the, the thing, taken to heart, 
the thing that you said, um, I don't believe that I'm turning these people into monsters. I think you're, I think you're wrong. But just in case, I'm conducting an experiment. I've taken a normal, healthy guy and sampled just a little bit of his blood. Um, and I've locked him in the room with me. And I'm going to stay in here with him to make sure of what happens next. And when I confirm that he is not a monster, then, then, then we'll know, right? I'll have been proven correct. And as we're... Yeah, she says she as, wants to see if she's really Typhoid Mary. Yeah. And as she's on the phone, we see he... The guy rises up. And we kind of are uh, treated to uh, his perspective. We see her lying down on the phone. She's talking to Hart the whole time. And Hart is freaking out. He's, he's telling screaming, her, Look, get out of the apartment. Lock don't do this. Yeah. Stop the broadcast. Stop it. You've got to stop. Oh, sorry. Wait, that was Halloween 3. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you've got to get out of there. Run. Get the fuck out of there. Run away. Run. Get in. Uh, yeah, he says at one point, out. you haven't given us enough time. Yeah, yeah. I think he's, he's thinking maybe he can take her somewhere and figure out a cure or something. Maybe that's what he's implying. Uh, who knows? He's desperate, right? And no, the uh, the guy rises up above her, and and she 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 sees the zombified man. Well, we we assume uh, we only see his shadow cast over her. And we cut to Hart on the phone. He hears her uh, panic. And just beats the shit out of the phone, just breaks it apart and <laughs> pounds on the ground. Helpless, he's helpless with fear and rage. You notice which we, the piece of art that we see in the background of this apartment? No. You see that? There's a head, a sculpted oh, head. Oh, that's right. That kind oh, of yes, like split yes. into two, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. Yes. I, all right, Faustus. All right. I noticed something you did. <laughs> okay. And what is this, Faustus? What is this? Well, it's like it's a sculpted head that's been split into two pieces. And they're, they're apart, and I think that this is this is probably an intentional piece of symbolism put in by Cronenberg to give the sense of the split self that, for example, Rose is right. She wants to get her innocence back, right? There's a part there's a part of her who wants to do this, but another part of her is the predator. Yeah, and she knows it. And she knows it at this point. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I can't believe you didn't see it. It's, it's like a gigantic fucking sculpture. It looks like in real life the thing looks like it's probably like about fucking four or five feet tall, right? Yeah, probably. not. I saw it, Tim. It's just better if somebody explains it so the uh, listener knows uh, what I'm talking hey, about. Hey, I'm new to this co-hosting thing. All right? It's okay. All right. uh, <laughs> and I love Faustus's voice. So anytime I can trick him into to monologuing, there you go. Always a good wonderful. Time, yes. So, yeah, he beats the phone into the ground, and we cut to the next day, where we see a dog digging in the trash, rooting around, trying to get himself a bone. Uh, only there's, uh, there's no bone to be found over there, little pup. Only the discarded, dejected, 
corpse in full rigor mortis of Rose. Now, I have a couple of questions. How did she get there? Because the guy kills her in the apartment, and we've never seen anybody in this part where somebody's zombified or rabid, where they do something to the body afterwards, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And isn't she immune? If the guy bites her, because so far what we see is whoever it is, they bite somebody one time, and that's pretty much it, right? Yes. So if she's the original carrier, if somebody bites her, does that mean that she's now she actually is infected? Where she was infecting everybody else and immune to it? We don't know that. Okay, just asking. And what we are treated to, though, is the uh, the hazardous waste disposal. Uh, military people drive on up with their with their trash compactor. They uh, shoo the dog away. They pick her rigor mortis body up. And isn't she in the same position? She Isn't she in like a Christ crucified position? Is the same thing when she was on the operating table? Uh, she's in a similar, yeah, kind of laid out position. I, I don't know about like a... Uh, like they just kind of fold her into the... I saw her just folding her into the truck. Yeah. And then, then activating the compactor. Well, when she's on the yeah. operating table, they have I mean, both her arms on like little separate tables coming out. Mm-hmm. And when the two, uh, I guess, army guys in hazmat suits are picking her up, the way that they're holding her, both her arms are hanging out almost like she's being crucified. I just thought, like, all right, the way that it started for her is the way that it ends for her with her arms hanging out like that. Possibly. True. I, I could see that, that, that symbolism. But, yeah, they, they just throw her ass in with the rest of the trash and crush it. And we roll credits and thank the Canadian <laughs> Film Society. And, and so, so it, it ends up a uh, very bleak ending, uh, which is common in Cronenberg. Well, yeah, because we don't know. This is just because she's dead. It's not the end of what's going on, right? Other people are well, still going around and infecting other people, right? We we hear it's mostly silent though. Uh, when we're picking her up the next day, we don't see a lot of people running well, around. Well, no, the we movie hear ends. Some doesn't end with the, sh- the city shot and just gunshots going off. I mean, we in the background, we, yes, we definitely hear sirens and gunshots in the background as the scene starts. So, all right, so she's dead, but it's not over. Something, yeah, something. Yeah, no, we, no. Uh, we don't really know, but it's also just bleak in terms of the arc. Like you know, the no one, the, our our heroes do not, you know, the primary character does not survive. She ends, and she also ends in a very undignified way. Uh, you know, she's she's mm-hmm. garbage. It reminds me the the disposal scene that reminds me a little bit of say Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where people are disposed of in garbage trucks. Um, so yeah. Well, it's, it's, yeah. Isn't that like the the worst thing that could happen to your body if if somebody kills you or does something to you that they throw you away in garbage that your or well, your body is found in or next to garbage? Yeah. Well, and of course, also it reminds me of the end of Night of the Living Dead, right? In, in that the government is is uh, exerting their 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 force, and they're just like, oh, here's another one of the dead. Uh, we're just gonna chuck it in the trash because I think. The thing that I don't know if it's it's implicit. I don't know if this is just me reaching, but 
of all of the corpses that they could find, she's very important, right? She's typhoid Exactly. Mary. She could be the cure for what's going on. Well, at least... Or to understand would, what's going on. Right. They would have a, a greater ability to understand it. But because it's like, okay, well, you've called us in to handle this situation. We're trained to handle it one way, and that is kill everything and dispose of it. Yeah, but on the other hand, Eddie... She's just some woman in a pile of garbage. Right. Well, they would never know, of course. And and I think that speaks to, like Faust said, it's the, it, it's the worst way you could ever imagine going out, right, is in a pile of trash. And a dog possibly eating you. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's, uh, that's kind of a wrap on rabid folks. Uh, there's a lot of discussion to be had about what what this movie means, what this movie might mean, but I think I think it's best left to you, right? I think that's what makes it a good movie is because I can have a completely different idea of what this movie is versus Faustus versus you. And Candace, who cares what she thinks about it? But. Yeah, no one cares about Candace. So Faustus Yes. What's what's your history with this movie? When did you first see it? I probably saw it on in, on VHS in my teens because I watched a lot of movies like this at that time. Can I ask you a question, Faustus? How old are sure. you? Sure. I am fifty three. Okay. All right. So I'm fifty two. Okay. So we kind of have like the same. Uh, we grew up and watching the same shit. Yeah. I mean, and also we have sort of a, I guess probably a common experience of watching. The VHS revolution happened. Oh yeah, the, yeah. Uh, of watching the sort of the rise of the independent, the rise and fall really of the independent VHS uh, rental operation. Uh, it started off at the mom and pops and it ended with yeah. fucking uh, blockbuster video and Hollywood video. Yeah, and I, I missed I, the mom and pops were great because they would pay up. They would basically rent you anything, and they they yeah. would also like they would. It also meant that they dug out of. The vaults, essentially, everything that they thought they would never show again. Uh, put it on VHS, gave it to mom and pops, they would rent it to you for a dollar a night, uh, and you could get pretty well entertained. Uh, I don't think I watched it much since then. I only recently, I've mostly recently started doing, trying to like go through all of Cronenberg that I can get my hands on. Uh, and so I rewatched it sometime when uh, this particular pandemic restarted because I was watching a lot of movies to have something to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it just sort of popped onto the radar uh, when Eddie suggested, you know, we're going to, we'd, we'd love to have you on. We are thinking of uh, doing a body horror month. This immediately came to mind as the thing to do. So it's like a, a long, a long ago watch uh, when some of the tastes were being formed, a rewatch when I was trying to get a little more scholarly about Cronenberg. And now there's this. I, I think it was a great pick. Well, yeah, that was wonderful. Tim, do you have any history with this at all? Or uh, Again, thanks to you and Faustus, the first time I've ever seen this movie. Wow. So, Faustus, I have a similar scenario to you. I, I rented it at a uh, mom pop video shop that was across the street from the, the hotel my folks managed. This is a where... famous, famous story? Like you had oh, like a... that's right. Yeah. Where you had the, the room that <laughs> the... didn't have any fucking water or some shit? Yes, yes. You had, and... you had the all-you-can-rent deal with the video store? Yep, yep. And it yeah, was that's right. The they used to have curtain. that shit. Yeah. yeah. It was behind the beaded curtain. And, and, and for me, if you tell me, Eddie, you're not allowed 
to do X. That is the very Wait, first thing this I Wait, this was behind the beaded curtain with the porn movies? Not the porn curtain. There were two. There, were, there was the room for horror. Wow. And then there shit. was the room for porn. And this was a long... Well, but you also had the faces of death and, and that other stuff in there. Um, I remember watching it and, and I did not get it because I was too young and stupid. And I'm yeah. now that I'm older, I'm still stupid. I also probably still don't get it. Uh, but oh yeah, it's like I've, when I first watched uh, Clockwork Orange when I was like 13 years old, and I was like, "Yeah, he's cured. All right." Yeah, <laughs> I get what it means for me. And and goddamn, did I enjoy this one? It's like you said, Faustus. I think. Uh, but between Shivers and, and Rabbit, I think Rabbit might. I think for me, Rabbit might be an evolution of Shivers. Well, I have to check out Shivers because that's another one I've never seen. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to do it. It's crazy Shiver- that I saw Brood when it came out in the fucking movie theaters, but all these other ones I haven't seen. But yeah, as far as like you said, Faustus, the the connection between the three. Um, yeah, I think, I think that, it's worth watching all three if you if you like any one of them. And there, I think there's also kind of an upward trajectory in terms of Cronenberg's skill uh, as a filmmaker. Um, Brood would also have been a spectacular choice for body horror movie. Uh, and oh, this one, yeah. I think, got just picked kind of because of the season and because of its topicality for this. Oh, it's, yeah. you couldn't pick yeah. a better time for this movie. Well, no. a worse time for this movie, maybe. Yeah. No, it's it's the it's the most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> it was the yeah. best of times and the worst of times. Actually, <laughs> mostly just the worst of times. Yeah. So, I would ask. I mean, as I usually do, if you have another thing like Rabid to suggest. For the listeners, of course, Shivers, we have already discussed that that's a perfect pick or, or just basically anything Cronenberg. Uh, 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 Faustus, do, do you have anything specific you would suggest? I would probably go up the ladder and if you've, if you've, once, if you've seen The Brood and haven't seen The Fly, you should move on to The Fly. That's, I think, mm. probably the most polished of the, of the Cronenberg body horror and then you should be willing to branch out into the into, into the Cronenberg weirdness, where he starts getting these middle period films like Existence, one uh, of my favorite yeah. movies. That's what I was going to tre- say. <laughs> treme- that's a tremendous movie. It's very body horror intensive, although it's also it's it's philosophical to a high degree. Uh, you might want to watch Crash, mm. uh, which is also very strange uh, and very body horror. Yeah, um, if you're if you're really going to be a, a completist, watch Naked Lunch. Um, that's the hardest one of them all to understand, but um, probably worth it if you're gonna if you're gonna go up this if you're gonna go up this this curve. That would be near the end, I think. The thing I difficult. remember the most about Naked Lunch was the Simpsons episode where uh, what's the uh, the kid's name? Ha ha kid went to see and he goes he comes out and goes. Nelson. I can think of two things wrong with this title. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, all phenomenal suggestions, Faustus. So, if if people want more of you, though, where can they go? Well, uh, probably you can just come over to my site, eroticmadscience.com. Uh, I'm you know sort of busy with various projects over there, uh, including like a, a sort of a, a kind of screenplay with kind of squa- quasi um, you know screenshots or um, you know to keep the sense of the thing going. I have a bunch of comics projects over there. Uh, done by various artists, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Erotic Medsci. Uh, Faustus, let me ask you a question: Why some of the stuff you post on Twitter is it in German? 
Uh, I had a multi-language project. There's a, I wrote a, a story, a kind of graphic novella called Bait. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I then had it as a sort of internationalizing gesture. I have a number of multilingual versions of it. Uh, it's, so it's been translated into a number of other languages. Uh, if you're looking at the, if you're looking at the site now, you'll probably see it being published in Russian. Um, and nice. okay. also like another one of the projects is also multi-language. There's a, it's actually meant to be a wordless comic originally, the one called Beware the Asylum. I know that very well, yes. Yeah, which is drawn by uh, Rafael Suzarte. Incredible Tatello. artwork, yes. Yeah, and uh, that has like multilingual captions, so I'm, I'm publishing that as well. Uh, it's, I don't know, it's some strange obsession I've got with internationalism. Don't ask. Well, yeah, no, because I always try to, like, whenever you put up and I see something in general, I'm like, what the, I don't even know what the fuck this guy is saying, but I like the picture, so I like it. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> Well, thankfully on Twitter, you can also hit the little translate button. And just in case. get a very misleading explanation Wait, of what's going for on. for real? Oh, yeah. Uh, see, and 52 it's, years uh, old using Twitter. I still don't know how to do it. It's hit or miss. And uh, uh, Tim, do you have anything you want to promote? Uh, no. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm doing, uh, I think, a Mustachio Podcastio with Daniel. That's coming out soon with Mike okay. from the Grind Bin. Uh, i got a couple of mini bins coming out. I'm doing a mini bin tomorrow, actually, which is going to be an incredible thing with Marlo Thomas explaining how to be a woman to young teenage girls experiencing their first periods. <laughs> Nobody better than you, Tim. Me, oh, it's going to be Daniel, Mike, and I. And if you need ex- explanation on a 1970s menstrual cycle documentary, the three of us can be only the choice that you pick. Yeah, I, that's wonderful. And for us, I mean, you're already listening to the podcast. If you can, hit the Patreon.com slash Bloody Bits. We're always adding new stuff there. And I guess I'll end it with one last thing. Faustus, what do you want for Christmas? Uh, you know what I want to do is travel freely once more. Next I'm gonna Christmas. Out, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come out and see you guys in Los Angeles. Uh, Please do. Please do. You're always welcome here. Yep. And uh, Tim, when this is all over, we'll go grab a meal together in the city. All right. I'll take you to the best <laughs> Korean restaurant in Flushing. Sounds good. Go down to Sparrow's and get the best slice in town. Uh, it's the pasta. You don't eat the pizza at <laughs> Sparrow's. Come on. That's for the tourist. The real New Yorkers know that's where you get the pasta. That's true. You get the best ziti in town. Oh, boy. All right, guys. So thank you very much for listening to the Bloody Bits Horror Show. And as always... This is how I end it.